Good morning, it's Danger Dan here on the Talk Shop. Man, today's episode is a fucking good one. I uh, randomly had some guy named, oh shit, I don't even know what his name is, but his Instagram handle was Pearl Snapped. He was over at Knives Made by Nick's shop getting his knife sharpened or buying a new knife or doing what you should be doing, checking out the badass shit that Nick makes. And uh, he told Nick, or I guess he reached out to me, was like, hey, I recently did a book release party for a guy named J.B. Zilke. And uh, he's got a book called The Lost Cowboy, and he's traveled around the world cowboying on six different continents. And he'd be a good fit for your show. And uh, I've started looking into this guy, and, you know, I'm like, hell yeah, he would be. He's fucking cowboyed in Argentina, Mongolia, Australia. Anyways, the podcast was super rad, and... Uh, you know, the highlight is fucking him going to Australia and chasing bulls on dirt bikes. Like, how fucking rad is that? Wild bulls. Like, wild fucking bulls in the bush in Australia. Anyways, J.B. Zilke, has got a book called The Lost Cowboy. You can buy it on Amazon. Look him up on the Instagram, The Lost Cowboy. And he's also got another endeavor called Dusty Vaquero, where he uh, films and highlights or showcases musicians that you know, pretty much spend their time in the dirt farming, ranching, and are songwriters. And, dude, he's got a bunch of rad music videos out. So check out him on all those platforms and enjoy this podcast. This show is brought to you by mcshoptees.com, your t-shirt of the month club, the only way to support every local motorcycle shop. Dude, each month we feature a different shop from around the country and do one-off limited print t-shirts that is only available for subscribers of MC Shop Tees. Go to mcshoptees.com to sign up. We've got women's sizes, kid sizes, and two different styles for men, soft and heavy tees. Dude, each month... We, we charge you at the first of the month, order, print, and ship the t-shirts as soon as we can. Each t-shirt comes with a postcard that tells you about the shop, what they specialize in, and how you can get a hold of them. It's a rad thing to support shops all around this country, sometimes outside the country. As you know, I like to get around. So go to mcshoptees.com and sign up now. This month's featured shop will be shipping this week. It is Speed Lux. Now, this cat specializes in restoring old vintage dirt bikes and Harley Davidson's. He builds race bikes, dude, and he's a fucking cool cat. He puts on an event called the Vintage 1000 where people race their vintage motorcycles through a fucking off-road race. I mean, it's more of like a run, uh, kind of uh, camouflaged as a race, but it's more just having a good time with your buds, uh, letting these guys take care of all the logistics. Uh, Jake Hines from Prism Supply did this a few years ago on his Sportster which is how I got, you know, these, this, how this shop got on my radar. So uh, the shop's owner name is Adam. He is, uh, he is not from here. At least his accent suggests so. Uh, but a super cool cat, and I hope you're signed up, because if you're not signed up and you're hearing about this now, you are going to miss the Speed Deluxe T-shirt with some badass art by a guy named Chaston Brand. Uh, but you do still have time to sign up before the end of April, and get next month's featured shop t-shirt, which is 
one of the raddest shops I've been able to feature. One of the most like uh, distinguished and well-known names, Indian Larry, man. He was a fucking pioneer, and uh, you know we lost him early doing what he loved. But uh, my friend Bobby Seeger has kept that torch alive and, you know, building parts right here in America in Brooklyn, New York. So go to mcshoptees.com to sign up now and get signed up before the end of the month to ensure that you get this next Indian Larry t-shirt with art done by Darren McKeague. So that's a beautiful thing. Go sign up now. Uh, this show if you want to support this show and you don't want any t-shirts, go to DangerDansTalkShop.com. There's a Patreon support link where you can donate 5 bucks a month to keep this show on the road. Each month I give away a $100 gift card to LowbrowCustoms.com. That's right. Lowbrow supports me and they will support you too, man. Those guys have got everything, man, and their customer service is fucking the best I've ever dealt with, especially when it comes to ordering motorcycle parts. Uh, right now, I've got a tire on the way. I've been running Bates Bajas that I get specifically from them. And, uh, dude, I mean, they keep me and my chopper on the road. And I hope that you will support them as well. Lowbrowcustoms.com. On top of that, I am giving away a trip to Nepal thanks to Motorcycle Sherpa. Actually, wait a second. I'm giving away an expedition. If you want to go with me, it's not going to be to Nepal. Uh, but somebody at the end of the year, for every $5 you donate, your name will get put in a hat, and at the end of the year, I will draw a winner who will win an expedition thanks to Motorcycle Sherpa. Uh, if you don't want to wait on winning, and you just want to go with me to Nepal this year, go to MotorcycleSherpa.com. I will be, quote, unquote, this will be my first guiding experience uh, on the November 1st through the 13th trip ride to the heavens in Nepal. Go to MotorcycleSherpa.com for more information. we got a bunch of rad events coming up. Uh, the next one is EDR. We'll be riding down to Mexico next month for Cinco de Mayo. Thanks to Built Well. Every bike's an adventure bike if you use it for adventures. Take their advice and hit the fucking road. Uh, later that month, we'll be in Tennessee at Loretta Lynn's Ranch and Hurricane Mills for the Tennessee Motorcycle Music Revival, home of the Bling Cycles Invitational, some of the baddest builders in the country, some of the best fucking music, period. Lulu and the Black Sheep will be playing, Paul Cawthon, Nikki Lane, Rob Lines, and the Ives Brothers will be there at the Wall of Death. There'll be a circle track, ADV experience. You'll get to ride a Pan America if you so please. Test ride it off-road in the fucking, some of the most badass trails in the country around Loretta's Place. So go check it out there. Tennessee, May, March, April, May, June, Born Free, California, July. Anyways, we've got a lot of more shit coming up later this year. Sturgis, uh, the Virginia City Roundup with Choppers Magazine, Party at the Pen, uh, Memorial Day weekend, actually. I just got word this morning that Tim Gigastat from Gigacycle Garage is putting on an off-road sportster ride. Go to Lowbrow Customs. Once again, for more details on that. Um, but let's go ahead and get into this podcast with J.B. Zilke. He showed up the other day. He's on like a book tour and uh, filming music videos all around Texas. And do we set up the lawn chairs out in the back 40 looking at the pond and the cows. And dude, I learned a little bit about cowboying all around this beautiful country. Fuck. All around this beautiful world. Anyways, here's J.B. Zilke. <laughs> Jacob. Mic check. Thanks for coming out, dude. I lost my drink. 
It's up there on the tailgate. Heck yeah. So uh, you're from Wyoming, right? Right. Can we we yeah. discuss that a little bit. Yeah. So I guess I, I guess I got to start how I. Somebody just randomly reached out on the internet and was like, "Hey, you got to meet this guy." And I guess it was the. I don't know him either. Pearl Snap. Pearl Snap. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's my buddy Steven. He he helped me plan like all of this stuff. Uh, I did a, a book release down here in in Fort Worth and. He's from around here. I didn't really know anybody in Fort Worth, so I hit him up, and he just took off with the event planning and stuff, and he's been Freaking killer sick. with all that. Yeah, he's a he's a good buddy. But he told he told me that he was where was he was at uh, Nick Nick's knife. Oh knife yeah, shop. Nick Huff, knives made by Nick. Yeah, he was over there, and that's how uh, I think that's how that happened. That's exactly what it was. So you wrote a book. You're on like a book tour, essentially, right? Yeah, kind of. Kind of. Book tour. I'm. I'm but you've been kind of touring for a minute too. I mean, that's yeah. That's why you wrote the book, right? Oh shit, my life is a tour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers to that, dude. <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, this is really the first time I've spent much time at all in in Texas. This really. Is the first time I've been down. I've done little, like I went to Amarillo for a weekend one time, and but this is the first time seeing most of like the the cool, big, open Dude, Texas. and you picked a good time. I mean, yeah. we've had like a nice spring, fucking highs in the 70s, lower 80s. It gets down to 50 at night. Yeah. Everything's green. Now, you might have gotten stuck in some of that rain they had down there last week, or was that the week before? Yeah. There was, there was like tornadoes in Fort Worth the day before we did that book signing deal over there. And okay, then yeah. <laughs> uh, so, there, yeah, there's been some weather, but not too... I mean, shit, they got... Two and a half feet of snow back home in Wyoming. Oh, I was fuck. seeing all the pictures people were sending me. I was like, man, I'm glad I'm sitting ankle deep and thigh deep in grass some places. It's fucking way nicer down here. Yeah, it is. There's gonna be some good cuts this year for sure. Yeah, just you just pick one. Yeah. Oh, turn this thing. So right now we're sitting on the back 40, staring at my mud pond. We pulled the shop. We pulled the podcast out of the shop. The talk shop is now the talk pasture. The talk pasture. We're looking at cows standing in the dirt tank. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those are the cows that have been shitting on my trails for sure. <laughs> uh, so tell me about your book. Because yeah. that was really, I guess that's what I was getting at. Is so when he said he helped you do a book signing or a book, a book. What'd you call it? Uh, it's like a release. Release. Yeah, release. I've like been toying around with the idea of writing a book recently about yep. some crazy shit I've done. And I'm like, I don't even know. Where to how, begin? Yeah, where to begin. I was like, I got to talk to this guy about his book. So what, what, is your, what spurred you to write this book? Uh, what spurred me to write it is I was, I was down in Mexico traveling around working on, working on a ranch down there. And... Uh, Essentially what happened, there was like a big gunfight in the streets and I didn't know it was happening. And so my boss called the people I was working with. We were on the edge of town. Me and, I mean, just some young dudes that worked on the farm with me and they're like, we're just sitting up there drinking beer on the hill, not paying attention. Meanwhile, there's some, some serious shit going down in town. And so the boss calls, he's like, do you got the gringo with you? And they're like, yeah, why? He's like, get him home right now. And so we're we're flying through these, you know, flying through these little tight streets in Mexico, trying to get back to the house. And 
I was staying with the, my boss's parents who were old, like in their mid seventies. And they, uh, when I walked in, she couldn't hardly lock the door behind me. Her hands were shaking so bad. And Holy I was like, shit. what's the problem? And she, she's like, don't you, I thought there was kids lighting off fireworks and shit in the street. And she's like, don't you hear the gunfight going on outside? And I was like, oh, that's, those are guns. I thought that was just fireworks. So there was, I don't know what it was all about, some like kind of rival cartel shit, and they started fighting. Some Mexico shit. Some typical Mexican shit. Yeah. And they, uh, they, yeah, they, I don't know, they, the, Grandma just told me to lay down below the window, and she's like, they're not coming here, but you don't want to catch a straight bullet, so just stay below the window until and They cared done. about you a lot. I thought they were yeah. gonna be like, is that gringo there? Send him down there to <laughs> you know, work things out with these crazy yeah. people. <laughs> I'm sure they could talk it out. Yeah. Yeah, so that I was laying on that floor in in that house, and I was like, man, it's really possible that I could die doing any of this shit. And I, I don't want to take it to the grave with me when I go. Yeah. And so it was right about then that I started writing, or actually the first step I did was I would just do voice memos. Okay, I'd I tell got the, the check. Yeah, I'd tell the stories, and I thought, well, at least... If I got all these voice memos, then I know, you know, if I die, somebody can do something with it. At least it's recorded. Yeah. And so then I went through that, and uh, the next step was the voice memos were pretty much done. And so I I uh, tried, I was going to just, like, pawn them off on some ghostwriter or something to do I've it for me. I've been thinking about the same thing. And so that... The only reason I didn't pursue that any further is because, like, if the book came out, if somebody else wrote it and it and it sucked or it was something I wasn't proud of or they got some details wrong or mm -hmm. something like that, I didn't think that I could live with myself knowing that I could have just done it myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because then there's no... It's not like you're... I'm not writing Lord of the Rings. Like, I can't go write another one yeah. and hope it's better. This, This is the story of my life. I don't get to redo that. That's what so. I'm thinking. I'm like, they're going to have so many fucking questions. I'm going to end up doing the work anyways just by communicating, you know? Exactly. What I left out in the voice memos. Exactly. So that that was what, so the way I started it is I just, I started to write a thousand words a day. Oh, shit. That's pretty and, good. Which it seems like a lot at first, but it's, I was writing it while I was night cabin for, for my grandpa up in Wyoming. And you, at, when you night cab, you just sit there and every hour on the hour you go out and ride through the cows and make sure none of the calves or cows need help mm -hmm. for any reason. And so it was perfect like one hour blocks that my night was set up into. And so I would just write for that one hour block and it, I could write a thousand words pretty, yeah. pretty easy. And especially when it was like, okay, this is, I get, get to the ranch, go check cows. If nothing's going on, I come in. And I sit down and write until my next check. Yep. One hour of writing. And it kind of sucked at first. It was hard. I had to rewrite a lot of that first stuff just because I was figuring it out. Mm -hmm. And then I, uh, but then I got into a rhythm of doing and that. So you, you like listen to a couple voice memos and then put it just down? Just type them out, yeah. yeah. So most, in the book, most of the stories that I wrote, they're roughly around a thousand words because that's the way I wrote it that way. And so I would condense each one of these like experiences that I had down into a thousand words. And you wouldn't have to do that, but for me, yeah. there's a few like two-parters that, you know, over the course of two nights or something, I'd write them. But 
Um, that's basically how the book ended up being written. It's just short little so stories. So it's like a short essays. More or less, yeah. yeah. And they're all in chronological order and stuff, but it's not like day day. You could pick it up and start one. Yeah, you could, you could pick it up and start one, and also like if you want to read it before going to bed, you can read. A thousand words doesn't take most people that long to no. read, so you can read that, set it down, be done, and there's like a hundred and you get something a, you short get a resolution. You yeah, know, a beginning and an end. Exactly. Yeah. Each story you kind of it begins, ends, and you call it quits, or you can read the whole thing in one sitting. It's yeah. you know whatever you want to do. So you say your life's a tour. When did you start traveling? I was so I I used to. I used to ride bulls, um, and when I was doing that, I we were on the road quite a bit, but like on the weekends, I was college rodeoing and stuff, so I'd, we were on the road a bit then, but when I started getting towards the end of my college time, that I was like, man, I quit rodeoing. I, so you're going to school in Wyoming? Yeah, University of Wyoming. And that's like a... A, an elect or a college sport at that college, yeah, yeah it's bulls. the same as same as football, football basketball, whatever. It's yeah. it's uh, they have call like you compete against other colleges and stuff, and nice. so uh, that's what I did in college. And then towards the end, I I had weight. I just had too many concussions and stuff. I was, and I wasn't that good at it. Honestly, I was just kind of doing it for, <laughs> for fun. Yeah. But uh, that's a fucking dangerous sport to do for fun. Yeah, and then towards the end, it was no longer fun and just started becoming scary. Like, oh man, I don't need another concussion. And so when you you can't get on, you so can't, you getting concussions just from hitting the ground or hitting the ground, horns, their head, just different. You know, there's lots of hard <laughs> shit to hit your head yeah. on in a rodeo arena. So, uh, yeah, so I quit doing that, and then it kind of left, like, a void in my life where I didn't know what to do next, and traveling kind of, I went to Australia um, right at the end of my college days and lived over there for four months catching wild cattle, feral bulls mostly. And oh, shit. It was, uh, so that kind of, like, filled in where rodeo left a, a hole. Like, I needed some sort of adventure. Now, were you training. working on your grandpa's ranch before that? Yeah, all through, like in the summers and stuff, I'd, I'd be going to little weekend rodeos or local stuff and then just working on the ranch. Yeah. So that was... That How was do you all, find a job in Australia? There was, a, there was a girl that was doing study abroad at the University of Wyoming that she... We had some classes together and I asked her if she could hook me up and took some convincing, but she eventually gave me her brother's email and he owned like a crew that they just owned choppers dirt bikes, four-wheelers, come on, and, and uh, some horses. What was his name, Matt? No, his name was Lockie. Lockie, okay. Yeah, but he, uh, yeah, so they were just living like way out in the bush. Like his, the emails I was sending him, he was getting on a sat phone, and <laughs> he was like, I would, I would email him and be like, ask all these questions. I'd never left the United States. Like, what do I bring? When do I need to be there? All this stuff, and he would respond with like five words, like, be at this airport this time see you then and that was it I was like, well i guess i'm going what i bought the tickets went over there and uh what year was this this would have been 20 2015 okay and uh yeah spent four months over there living in a bedroll never slept inside one night in the entire four months i was no over way. there just just as far out in the bush as you could go 
Catching wild bulls. Catching wild bulls. We'd run them down. A lot of it was done with four wheelers that had like big bumpers on them, mm-hmm. and you could kind of tip, like push the bulls around and tip them over and tie them up like that. Yeah. But we did some on dirt bikes too. Like I'd, I'd, I'd ridden dirt bikes a lot growing up, and so I it was pretty easy for me to just hop Your on. Your granddad let you ride dirt bikes around his ranch. He'd. So my granddad, the guy I referred to as my granddad, is not blood to me, and he like came into my life when I was a bit older. So when I was little, as much as I loved being on horses and working on the ranch, dirt bikes were the same amount of freedom to me. Yeah, so I had are. like a, I had this just pile of shit like 60s Chaparral 100 dirt bike. <laughs> Somebody had like spray, like painted the tank with really bad flames on it and stuff. Sick, and I man. just, uh, I would ride, I'd ride that thing. I grew up in Northern Colorado. And so there was trails and national mm-hmm. forests and stuff. And I'd go out with the neighbor kids if they had a bike or something. And I just jumped that thing until the, the I don't know that it had fork seals to begin with. And I just jumped it until I think I just, so I don't know if I blew the transmission up, or but every time I landed, I just cased it hard. <laughs> so I probably only had that bike for a summer, and I just trashed it. And uh, I was hooked on them ever since that happened. Yeah. So I was, I I got like better dirt bikes with t- n- never nice ones, but things that were actually supposed to be jumped and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so in Australia, they, they were like, "Can you think you can ride that thing?" And it was like a Honda 230 four stroke. Like oh, not, I fucking saw one of those yesterday. They're they're not very fast. They don't have the any most, balls, but they'll run for a long they're time. They're like the most bulletproof bikes I've yeah. ever been around. So I was like, yeah, man, I could definitely ride that thing. So half my time was horseback, half my time was on a dirt bike. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, it was sick. those bikes. Gig. The way that we would catch those cattle is we'd we'd run them, chase them on the dirt bikes until they'd get kind of tired and mm-hmm. want to fight. And once they get tired, their back end gets, like, that's the first part of a cow that kind of weakens. So we'd run them. And then once we could see they were getting a little wobbly or ready to fight us, we'd just ride up next to them. And with with our left hand, we'd reach down and grab the brush on their tail. And then with your right hand, you just throttle down and turn off to the right a little bit. And you just, like, pit maneuver them. And they'd pull their their hips out from underneath. Swing their hips out to the side. They'd trip over their own feet and just flop on their side. And you had to have somebody kind of trailing behind you to jump on top of them. Yeah. But the only way, and then you had to jump off and help them. But on those two thirties, like that, you didn't have time to get off, put it in neutral, put down the kickstand. You just dump them. Yeah. And so they all we just had bulldogging on a horse, just bail. Yeah, just bail. Let the bike go. And so we just had like extra handlebars sitting around everywhere because or big pipes to get them back straight and shit like that. It was it was pretty rough on the bikes, but it, it I almost got killed actually one time because I broke the shifter off my bike. There's a video of this on YouTube and I pulled up and I went to lean the bike over and get off to help these guys, but it wouldn't come out of gear. It was still way up in like fourth gear and the bull sees me stopping turns directly towards me so i'm trying to take off on a red honda on a red honda (laughs) in fourth gear and it wouldn't go anywhere and that bull just steamrolled the bike and i barely got out from underneath it and like tripped over the bike and bent the handlebars and then we end up throwing it on the ground and tying it up but it was we were hard on hard on. what's funny is you said those guys had choppers and the first thing i thought 
Oh, right? you're thinking bikes, yeah. Well, well, no, I was. Oh, you were talking bikes. No, I'm talking like, like flying in the okay, air. Okay, that's what I was thinking. But then you said dirt bikes. I started thinking you were talking about like choppers. No, no, because a guy I knew in Wyoming. That's how they would catch wild horses. They just fly around in the helicopters and run those horses till they fucking were winded and then come up and yeah, corral them up. That's yeah. essentially what we did with cattle over there. Wow. Is there that much of it over there? Just wild cattle running around? Yeah, well, we were on a pretty... And this was private land, public land? I mean... So the, the place we were catching cattle was, it was an aboriginal community, which is essentially like our, like an Indian reservation here. Okay. So it was a cattle station, a big one, that had been bought by the government and given back to the aboriginals to build on, this is your land. Yeah. And that happened, I don't know, it was like 50, 60 years before we were there. And so when they took it over, it was a fully working cattle ranch. It had all the facilities and fences and all that stuff. And th they just didn't want to run it as a ranch. They just wanted it to be land. Like, so like all the, the Indians here. They were the, yeah. yeah they didn't, like you give them, just because some people want this like American or, you know, Western version of a successful business or whatever. That doesn't mean everybody wants no, that. No, no, they're so content with so little. Exactly. So they, they were like, well, the cattle are, they're not hurting us. So yeah. just leave them out there. We'll hunt one when we need to eat Yeah, them. they would shoot them when they needed to eat them. <laughs> yeah. That's how we did it too. We Like the whole crew, we'd just go out and shoot a fat cow and cut it up. And that's how we <laughs> fed ourselves. But they, uh, so this, for like 60 years, these cattle had just reverted back to nature. So because of that... Now, what kind of cattle were they? They were Brahmin and Shorthorn. They were, I mean, they were every color you could imagine, like, but they were mostly Brahmin and Shorthorn. Okay. And so they were kind of red, For some reason, white, I imagine gray. they'd have, like, those... What are those, like, the longhorns with the bit where the, the, the horns Watusis? are... Yeah, that's yeah. what I was thinking would be <laughs> out there in no, Australia. I mean, they all got big-ass horns on them, big, sharp horns, but they're... They're pretty normal-looking cows, really. Okay. But most of them had hardly ever seen a person. Definitely never been touched. No brands it's on them. It's hard to even imagine that cows exist like that. Like yeah. cows in the wild. Like I, you said that, and it just didn't even register. Right. You know. There's there's also they call them bangtangs or uh, water buffalo over there that they brought. I don't know. I don't think they're native. They're like they brought them down from Asia at some point, and yeah. they got. And they're twice as fast as cattle, twice yeah, as strong. Yeah, they're like the most dangerous animal in Africa. Yeah, well, these water are buffalo. the Asian water buffalo. Okay, it's, a, it's a different. But the... same thing, like they, they're black. They almost look like they're half pig, <laughs> like huge horns. And we never caught any of those. Those are like prized possessions if you can catch one because they're so hard to catch. Really? But they, I heard stories of it. We just never got the chance to try and catch one. They, they said that you could take a quarter and stand on the top rail of the corrals and throw it at one of those things. And their horns are like six feet wide. And they could hit that quarter out of the air with the tip of their horn. That's how accurate they were. I mean, I never saw that, but yeah. this is the stories I heard. But uh, yeah, so, so the cattle were just, it was 50% bulls, 50% cows, because nobody had been castrating or taking yeah. care of any of it. So our job, the I don't know how the contract worked, the government or if You're it was the elders. The crazy guy. So, yeah, this guy speaks in five letter, five word sentences. <laughs> yeah, and he brought the crew out there, and we caught the cattle. I don't know if all the money went to us or if some went to the Aboriginal community or what, but we uh, we'd catch them, and all the bulls would get sent off for meat, 
and then the cows, we'd stick a brand on them and let them back loose. And if the calves were old enough to be weaned off, we'd pull them off and sell them to a feedlot or something. Okay. And then we'd turn out like purebred Brahmin bulls in hopes of like genetically kind of getting those cows back gotcha. to Releasing what they should the ones be. That, that got some genetics worth passing on. Right. So we d- we did that on that, but we had three places we were yeah, in charge could you, of. Could you break a cow? Like, is that, I mean, break it how? I don't know. I mean, I was just trying to like, it's like a wild animal at that point. But I mean, I guess essentially these are, you know, they're not going to let you walk up and touch them, but still work them. I guess breaking's not the word I'm thinking. Yeah, you can gentle them down quite a bit. Gentle them. Maybe that's it, you know, like. The corrals we had to use to keep those things in were. Were they like temporary ones, or were you using the ones that they let? We were go using to shit? we were using the ones they let go to shit. Okay. And we didn't have a lot of materials to rebuild them. So there's like when there's a pissed off bull on the other side of that fence, if you think that fence is gonna stop him, it's you're not, wrong. Yeah. So we had it was pretty dicey working them in the corrals because yeah. they were they were wild. You know, I've worked cows in, in different kind of the the corrals we got set up. It's so good. It's. They're so nice. Uh, but even then, just having like a solid fence, being in between a cow and a solid fence is about as dangerous as being, you know, on the other side of a fence you might think will hold them. You know? <laughs> it's, a, it's a mental barrier. It's yeah. not really physical. <laughs> yeah. So that was. So you spent a solid four months working for this guy in Australia. Yeah. Did the... you have to get like a work permit or was it just like a. Yeah, I had to get a work visa. Um it was called the traveling holiday visa, and it let you, uh, for one year, it's a one-time deal. For one year, you can work in Australia. Um, so that I got that one. That was the only place I ever got paid to go. I made money over there, but uh, the rest of the countries and stuff I went to, I just told people I'd work for free if they fed me and gave me a place to sleep. Wow. Yeah, I met some girls in uh, Colombia from Europe. And that's what they were doing is traveling around, working on farms in Colombia, mm-hmm. just, you know, for board and food. Right. You know? I mean, it's travel's cheap at that point it, because you're, it doesn't cost you anything to be there. It's just your time, basically. Yeah. So I would save up. Before I'd leave the U.S., I'd have like two, three grand in my bank account. So after that stint in Australia, did you stick around and go do some exploring of your own? Or were you like, that's plenty? I I've went, seen the Outback. <laughs> I went to... I went and rodeoed some of the guys I worked with never mentioned it to me until the last week. Turns out they're like Australian rodeo champions. Oh, yeah. Like some of, of the best in the are. country. Because <laughs> so, most of the guys I worked with, they're like felons and, yeah. you know, cra- I mean, people that yeah, society are, kicked when out. When you say champion bull riders, that's what I think. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like I always compared like the early on, like, freestyle motocross guys yeah. to bull riders. Like, they're yeah. just like, they got screws loose. They're not all there. They're <laughs> yeah. a lot of fun to hang out with, but, you know, you don't want to, you're not going to send your little girl with them, you know? Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so that's, so they just casually mention, like, oh, yeah, by the way, we're going to go on this two-week rodeo run, and we're going to hit all these rodeos on the way down and end up close to Brisbane, which is where my flight was out of. So Perfect. I was like, sweet, dude, I'll just throw my bedroll on the back of your truck and let's go. Let's, I, so I got to see a bunch of Queensland by going with those guys. They won like half the rodeos we went to. No so way. just party like rock stars the whole time because they'd, 
They didn't care about the money. They, you weren't I mean, scared anymore at that point, huh? Uh-uh. In another country trying to produce some shit? No All, way. Even if it's there, it's gone. There was one night where two of the guys I was traveling with, that in, in town, they didn't really appreciate cow Like, they weren't fans of cowboys in town. So we, uh, there was, what did we take? We took, like, a, a cab. We got out of the bar, and there was, like, Ten of us. There's like three or four dudes. A bunch of these chicks were in the back of the van. We're all going back to the, our campsite for the night because they kicked us out of the bar. So my buddy Reese is up in the front seat, went next to the driver, and I don't know if it was me or somebody else, but I was like, "Hey Reese, how about some tunes?" Because there's no music playing. And Reese turns on the radio, and the guy immediately turns it off, and, and he's like what the fuck, mate? My friends want some tunes. Yeah. So he cranks the radio as loud as it will go, and this this taxi driver's not happy, like, turns it off. He's like, fine, I'll sing to him then. And he starts just pounding on the dash, and he starts going, he's like, ba da da ba like, just getting crazy in the front seat. So we hadn't even made it a block by the time this happens. He turns around this, like, taxi van, whips the door open, and he's like, all of you get out. So we step out, and there's a bunch of cops right there. Oh, fuck. And somebody, somebody made a comment. One of the cops was like, I fucking hate cowboys. And no. immediately, it was, like, it was a, just a, a fight immediately. Reese has got like three cops hanging off him, fighting him. His best friend saw that happen, and he's like, I ain't letting that happen. So he's fighting cops. Turned into a big brawl in the middle of this street. And they finally like get his buddy in a chokehold, and three got three cops have got him, <coughs> and they're trying to put him into like the bed of this truck to keep him contained, and he just smashes the tail light out with his like kicks it out as they're trying to load him, and I was like, man, what did I? I'm sitting there like rolling up a cigarette watching this happen. I'm like, what am I doing here? Yeah. <laughs> so then Reese, uh, he was kind of settled down and. Our other buddy Chuck, who's in the back of this truck now, starts taking his head and banging it on the side of the truck. And Reese, I'll never forget it. Reese is like, Charlie boy, I'm coming, Charlie boy. <laughs> <laughs> Immediately starts fighting all these cops again. <laughs> and, he, and he, it took like six of them. And Reese is not a big dude. He's took like six of them to take him down. Yeah. They ended up having to choke him out. And he finally goes down unconscious. And I was like, well, what What did you need to do that for? And he kind of comes back Who to Who are you saying that to? The cops? To the cop. I was yes. like, did you really need to choke him out? Of course they did. Of course they did. But I had to say something. <laughs> so so, so Reese kind of comes back too, and he looks up at me very confused. Yeah. And for some reason down there, all those guys called me Texas. And I was like, you understand I'm not from Texas. Like, we don't care. That's all we know about the U.S. <laughs> so, so he looks up at me. He's like, Texas, what are we doing? I said, Reese, you're fighting the cops. And it was back on. I mean, it took like, it no took, it took probably 15 minutes on. to get him into the back of that. And those were the two guys I was traveling with. So the cops drive off with them in the back. I don't know where I am. I don't even know the name of the town I was in. So I was like, well, shit, where, where's the cop station? Because... I gotta go find those guys. Yeah. And so it was like 10 blocks down. I ended up like sleeping like a, like a dog on the front steps of the police station waiting for them to get out. 
because <laughs> I had no idea where the campsite was. What and uh, yeah, that was. Oh. So man. the rodeo, there was a lot of stuff that happened like that just in the two-week rodeo run that we did. Yeah. Then I got. What on a way a, to celebrate that first fucking trip abroad. Yeah. You know, working hard and playing even harder. It sounds yeah. like. And I got my my ass kicked the night two nights before I had to fly out. So I had to, uh, I'd been hanging out with By real. Reese or what? No, they, I wish he was there. Yeah. But <laughs> that was the problem is that I'd been rolling with some of the, probably the roughest dudes in Australia the whole time I was there. So I got drunk and pretty mouthy at a polo match. Oh, and, and they I, weren't there. None of my you buddies were there. You were in a fucking there. polo match? Yeah, I got taken along <laughs> with these girls to a polo match. <laughs> And so, oh, these girls are high maintenance. I can already tell. So they, there's a, there was a shuttle that ran everybody back into town after the polo match, and so we're on the shuttle, and I stood up. They stood up to get off the bus, and they had, a bunch of us had got a hotel together, and so I'm trying to follow them so I don't get lost. And I said, some guy tried to stop me from getting off, and I was like, man, I got to go with them. He's like, no, you're not. And I just looked him dead in the eye. He's still sitting down. I said, I bet you think you're a real tough motherfucker, don't you? <laughs> and it turns out he was. <laughs> he, he's, he stood up and grabbed me by my throat and threw me down on the bus seat. My, my ear caught a, a bolt sticking out of the bus seat and ripped my ear. Him and his buddies went to stomping on me. And so when I got on that plane to fly back home, I was just wearing dirty ripped up clothes from the bush my ears taped shut got lumps all over my head (laughs) i can't imagine what people thought of me getting on that plane because i would have looked rough oh go back home boy that is rough yeah so that was all that was australia in a nutshell yeah yeah there's a guy he hit me up on the internet uh probably four years ago and uh he was like, hey, man, we're coming to Texas. No, I don't even think he said, yeah, he said, we're coming to Texas, and uh, me and my wife want to get married while we're there. And we hear that you do weddings. And I'm like, no, not really, but I've done a couple. Yeah. You know? And, and, and I, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll do it, whatever. And as time goes on, I figure out that this is a couple from Australia. Mm-hmm. This guy named Luke and his wife, and he owns like a tattoo shop and rides choppers and dirt bikes. Oh, sick! And uh, and you know they end up showing up. I fucking I ride my chopper down there. I break down on the, when I show up. I'm fucking my nice Eli shirt is covered in grease because I've been <laughs> fucking with my chain. My hands were literally black. Yeah. They like took a they took a photo of the wedding rings in my hand. <laughs> and they're just covered in oil. It was fucking gnarly. <laughs> And I and on the way there, I stopped at my buddy Eric's shop in Houston, and uh, oh yeah, when they said where they wanted to do it, it was the name of a park. Well, there's a park about 30 miles from here with that same name, and then there's the one South Texas. The oh same no! Name. They were talking about that one, which wasn't that big of a deal, you know. I got to go on a chopper ride, and uh, but yeah, I stopped and got a panhead manual because I'm like, I don't, I'm not, you know, this isn't like a, a Baptist. You know, wedding by any means. <laughs> if I'm if I'm the guy officiating, right? Yeah. So I got the the manual. He shows up and almost, you know, he gets out of this fucking limo. I'm on my chopper at this park, and he sees me holding that manual. He's like, fucking, almost goes into tears. He's like, no <laughs> way. I was gonna ask you to bring a, you know, a Harley manual to do the, the wedding with, but I just yeah. didn't 
you know, I just thought I'd just let you do whatever you do. And, you know, I show up with it. <laughs> and funny. I came up with something on the spot. And uh, the wedding went great. And uh, a year or two later, I, w- I had a Springer on that chopper I just showed you. Yeah. And I wanted to get rid of it. Or he was looking for one. So I was like, fuck it, I'll send you mine. You know, just pay for shipping. And he's like, well, what do you want for it? And I was like, I want there to be a chopper waiting at the airport when I finally decide to fly to Australia. Yeah. He's like, fucking done. <laughs> so I haven't Sick. done it yet, but I'm fi- I am going to Australia. You got an IOU. And Luke's going to have a chopper waiting at the airport. Oh, for that'd me. be so much fun. Yeah. I, I ran across a couple of guys like that down there that were like doing trip. They'd go down and buy Harley or buy a bike of some kind and do like a loop around Australia and then just sell it when they're done. Oh, yeah. I bet that would be sweet. Well, dude, the, I mean, the bikes go for so much money over there. I met a guy. Actually, I didn't meet him. I met some friends of a guy named Matt. He was supposed to go on a ride with us and got stuck in Australia because COVID and shit in 2020. Yeah. Well, that's what he does. He comes over here and buys fucking hot rods and choppers and sticks them on a fucking container and sends them home. Sends them back. You know, and sells them over there. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah. importing exporting of old motorcycles is weird in different places. Yeah, I never really thought about that. Yeah. Might be able to ship one over cheaper than buying one. Yeah, you probably you, you could ship one over probably, ride it around and then sell it and probably pay for the whole fucking trip. Yeah, there you go. That's a thought. Yeah. Hey Luke, I still want another chopper waiting <laughs> to the airport if I yeah. show up. Even if I show up with mine. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's, I mean, that's a pretty good little, uh, you know, the, my first traveling trip abroad was just to Mexico when I was like 13. I went down there just like Brady and built houses. Yeah. And built like a, it was like some church mission trip. Uh, but I remember that like going down there and like, you know, I'm with the church. We're like trying to help these people out. But I feel like they help me out more than anything. Like they're like, yeah. they're so happy. They're living in <clears throat> dirt fucking huts. And yeah. They're, they're like, they let us help them, you yeah. know, like, because it was giving the people I was with joy. Yep. You know, and I saw that th- they were so content with what little they had, it just gave me a whole new appreciation for everything back home, you know, right. like, and that, that's kind of what made me go, shit, you know, I want to, I want to see more. Right. Um, but that's, that's a good first out of the country experience right there. Yeah, it was a good time. And, uh. I came back, finished up my college stuff, and then I, uh, I wanted to learn. Did you thank that girl? Yeah. Yeah. I still talk to her all the time. Nice. Yeah, she's. I, I believe she lives back down in Australia now, but I've, she's come back a few times, and we've run into each other, and we, we ran into each other at a truck stop in Winnemucca, Nevada, a couple on, years ago. Dude. <laughs> like, come on. She, I think she saw it on my Instagram that I was headed like out towards California and she's like we just left California and I said well we're gonna meet on 80 somewhere yeah turned out being right there in Winnemucca that's fucking wild (laughs) but uh yeah old Lizzie she she hooked me up so did you come back and graduate came back graduated uh then I I realized uh that I didn't know any Spanish or any other language for that matter I'd never taken a class in my entire life on a different language so I wanted to learn one and I at that time I'm 20 22 years old and I was like man the only way I'm going to learn anything is to just go throw myself in the middle of it so I started looking for and all I knew how to do was like ranch work so 
I started looking they do for that shit everywhere. Yeah, that, <laughs> they do. It's everywhere. Labor with with animals is in every country probably. Yeah. Dang there. And so they, uh, yeah, I started looking for countries that spoke Spanish that I could go work in, and obviously I thought of Mexico, but at that time. I wasn't traveled enough that I felt safe like going into Mexico. That the whole story of when I started writing the book is much later on. Yeah. So I looked for somewhere that I felt like was safer, and uh, I like Central America. Well, I ended up picking Argentina. I oh, wanted fucking great. Yeah, I wanted to go to Brazil, but I was like, that's not going to help me with my Spanish. So yeah, Portuguese speaking motherfucker. Yeah, there. that wouldn't do me a lot of good in the U.S. So. Uh, yeah, I went to Argentina, lived with gauchos down yeah, there for gauchos. So you yeah. did the whole mate thing. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We drank mate every morning. Drank uh, fernet and coke. It's like fernet their favorite. And coke, dude, my first experience in Argentina, a bike broke down. I hooked up with some locals. Fucking the tea, the fucking the fernet and cola. They even had mushrooms. Cooked fucking meat over an open fire. Oh yeah. It was, and then I did that the whole time I was there. Yeah. You were doing it with like everything that we were doing was kind of like when I learned more about it, it was just based off the gaucho lifestyle. Yeah. Kind of like transitioned into the culture of the Argentinian people. Right. And the weird thing down there in Argentina was so I, when I flew into the city first. You go to Buenos Aires? Yeah. That's where I flew into. And I, I had a, <clears throat> I had a, a friend that from the US that she, that she was working for some nonprofit or something down there. And so when she found out I was going down, she told me, I'm right here in the city, so you ought to stop in for a night or two. And her and her uh, boyfriend had a little apartment there. So we, I went and stayed with them, and we went and had dinner with some of their friends that night. And I told them, I was like, I'm going to go out and work. I'm going to go be a gaucho, go work with these guys. Because in the United States, it's you know it's something to be kind of proud of. You're a cowboy. I'm going to go cowboy with these guys. So the way I said it to them in English, they're like, I don't think you want to say that down here. They're, they're like, that's not Dude, the... the city people in Buenos Aires are like city people. They have like yeah. another name for them. I, I, fuck, I wish I remember. They Like Gaucho, they have, like there's a name for the the local people that are city people. I don't yeah. even know what the word is. I can't remember either. But they, they were like, you know, it's not a good thing to be a gaucho. That, like, they refer to anybody that lives rural and is poor as a gaucho. Oh, and, really? Yeah. That's like a derogatory term for... Yeah, it's not some. I mean, at least if you live in the city, yeah. it's not like something you go around bragging about because it just means you're low income and live outside of a city. Wow. So down there, that was weird to me. Did, did Buenos Aires catch you as off guard as it did me, like as modern as it is and yeah. nice? I mean, it's like... And it's totally different than American cities, it seemed like. Well, being very, very similar, but it was... Uh, it seemed like more cultured and more, even more evolved or like uh, maybe more modern to some degree. And it was it was very European to me, which yeah. was kind of, I hadn't been to Europe at this point, but it doesn't seem like, it's not like a Houston or a Fort Worth. Well, see, but, I went to Santiago and it seemed like an American city. Yeah, I've never been there. Buenos Aires seemed like it was beyond an American city. Like yeah. it was like. Even nicer. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was strange. It was real strange. Yeah. But I went through our. I went through like, 
all the rural parts of Argentina first. Right. And then that was the last place I went. So. Yeah, that would have been, I'm sure, shocking. That it was what I didn't know is that tons of Europeans around World War II times yeah. moved down there. Fucking light skinned people everywhere. Yeah, blonde haired, blue eyed people can't speak a lick of English or any other language besides Spanish. And that was my first like run into people like that. That they didn't look like they they weren't really Latinos, I guess. No, I, don't know, no. I don't know what you'd call them, but they, um, so they were, but when you were in <coughs> Buenos Aires, their, uh, their Spanish almost sounded Italian. I had a really hard time understanding the city people speaking Spanish because it was really fast, like Italian, and you go out into the country and the people speak slower and they don't, but they would even use, they would throw in like Italian words and stuff because some of these, People like some of the old people I was around in Buenos Aires were some of them were born in Italy and stuff like they were really? Italians living there. When one thing that one of the guys was trying to explain to me, they do a lot of is they to to make a word slang, they say that word backwards. Oh really? Yeah, like to where it gives it a whole different, not really a different meaning, but a different like. Uh, it's, you know, a different feeling along with yeah. that word, you know, where it's like, uh, it's just, he was just saying, that's how we make some word slang is we just say that word backwards. Like they just spell it backwards and pronounce it backwards. Okay. I didn't know that. That's wild. Yeah. So I wonder if maybe some of those words you were hearing was like, sounded so crazy because <laughs> it's, it's a different words. language and they're saying it backwards. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah, that would make sense. It was... I didn't come home from Argentina fluent in Spanish. Like, I knew way more than when I left. But just spending three months down there wasn't enough for me to become, yeah. like, fully fluent. I used this app on my phone. So where did you go once you got to Buenos Aires? Where was the gaucho work? <clears throat> I went to, like, Cordoba area, central Argentina. Yeah. That's where they played tons of polo and stuff, and there's a big university. And then it was about an hour outside of there. And this, I'm trying to think, I don't remember the name of the little town. Uh, but it was just like a ranch outside of Cordoba. So I worked there for like a month, and then I went north up to Corrientes. And Corrientes is like right on the Brazilian, I think it shares a, the border with both Paraguay or Uruguay, one of those two, and Brazil. Okay. So it's like way north. It was, because you're in, in the Pampa when you're in Cordoba, it's like grasslands and stuff. Yep. And then you go up to the north and there's capybaras and monkeys and shit running around so it was Argentina has like everything you know it's yeah. a real long continent it's got the mountain range on one side it's got the beach on the other yep you got the deserts of Patagonia and then you got like you just the tip of the jungle you know yep. of Brazil and exactly Bolivia and Peru they've got it yep it's a narrow country but they super long yeah yeah I loved it now if I was gonna live Outside the U.S., I'd probably live in Argentina. I loved it down there. Yeah, me too. Argentina was, so when I rode from here to uh, Ushuaia, you know, there's a bunch of beautiful places. Mexico's great. I mean, right. everything in between here, there is great. But not until I got to Argentina did I go, fuck, I got to bring my wife back here. Yeah. You know, like, it's just civilized enough to, like, trust you know, the system, right? you know, with a woman. <laughs> yeah. But it's still, like, remote and beautiful, and, you know, it's it was, I loved it. I really did love it. Me too. It was, 
Yeah, that's a perfect way to put it. It's uh, it's civilized enough that it's not like living in a third world country. Yeah. yeah. But it's uh yeah, it's a cool place. The food is great, the people are great. I think in my travels that as a whole, the most attractive people that I ever saw it was Argentina. Yeah. Like p- people down there just as a whole are way more attractive than most places I've ever been. That's interesting. But it was yeah, I loved it down there. I got sick. My liver started failing. I got Zika virus when I was down there. So I intended to stay much longer. And but when I got sick, I how do you get Zika virus? Mosquitoes. Okay. I was I was living in a when I lived on that northern ranch. It was right in the swamp. Like didn't the place I lived. What kind of animals were you working there? uh, So that that particular ranch was weird because they had Hereford cattle in the swamp. So the cattle did okay. not fit the environment, yeah. and it was weird. But they. Uh, but it worked. Not really. They weren't the best. <laughs> they had a lot of them, like thousands of them. But they were probably the, some of the poorest-looking Herefords I'd ever seen. I was surprised they didn't have Brahmin or you know hotter weather cattle there. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so they. But while I was there, the place I was living in had no windows or anything. I think it had a door, but it didn't have windows and. I didn't have a mosquito net or very much bug spray or anything, so I just had a fan that I'd put on myself and hoped that kept most of the mosquitoes off at night. But then you go out during the day and you're like pushing cows through a swamp and you just got mosquitoes all over you. Bugs everywhere. So that was, I didn't know I had it, but I knew I was really sick and so I ended up flying back home sooner than anticipated and that was, they said they thought that's what it was, but they couldn't figure it out. They ran a ton of tests trying to figure Down it out. Down there or up here? Up here. And they they couldn't figure it out here, but they, like, knocked off all the the stuff that would have been, the like, hepatitis A. and quarantine and... Yeah, well, they said that, they said if it is Zika, one, we can't really do anything about it, and two, the mosquitoes that transmit that don't live here. So you're not, it's not like you're going to give it to somebody else or oh, anything, wow. so... All you gotta do is just like take care of yourself and live a pretty clean life until that until it gets better. That's what my wife tells me every time I get sick. <laughs> you gotta live a cleaner yeah. life. She starts feeding me Chinese herbs and you know, hey, we're gonna <laughs> clean you up go. your diet a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, Argentina's good. Now what so that's Australia and Argentina, those are both like Pretty much on the same side of the earth, you know, like yeah. they're really the opposite close. of here. Yeah. Yeah. So they like. What about the fucking sunsets in Argentina? They just last forever. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know how Cordova is. Well, Cordova is. It's pretty good, but like once you get further south, like like once I got down into Patagonia, it seemed like once the sun hit the horizon, it would take almost two hours for it to fully set. for it to fully submerge. I never got to go down that far south when I was there but I've been I lived in the next place I went was Sweden which was way north okay and it was similar and I've and I spent some time in Alaska too that blew my mind having like 20 hours 22 hours of daylight when I was up there yeah. it's hard to sleep but it messes with you yeah well you know like in Argentina they all eat or at least where I was at they always ate dinner really late like they wouldn't yeah. even start the fire till 10 o'clock yep and I think that's because the sun's up so long, like they're just used to working or doing other things, and then 
once the sun is set, then you start preparing dinner. Yeah, when that was, yeah, I forgot about that. They would, we would go out and eat dinner like midnight. Yeah. And then after dinner was over, people would be like, oh, you want to go out to the bar? We'll have a couple drinks. So you go out to the bar until like two or three. And then the, the nightclubs in Argentina don't even open until three. So, the, yeah, they're on a whole different schedule That's down wild. there. Like the late, late nights. Well, now, how is like the cowboy schedule down there? I mean, this, they were kind of the opposite because it gets so hot, at least in the northern part, it gets so hot that they siesta in the middle of the day. So they, yeah. they'd be up at four in the morning going to catch horses and getting ready for the day. And they'd work until, you know, 10, 11 when it started getting really hot. And then we'd be done and siesta for two, three hours and, until it cooled off a little bit and finished whatever we were doing at the end of the day. Yeah. So they, they did not, the city people and the rural people do not live the same no. schedule. I mean, that's pretty consistent up here, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they they were, yeah, they are Yeah, I mean, the much farm a, life, you just work according to the sun. I mean, the sun really dominates your schedule. Exactly. Like, that's how you're making decisions. The sun and... If, and, if there's and light the, to see, more than the, you you, know, more than likely you're working. You better get to work, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I loved it. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't see a lot of cattle in Argentina. I did. I definitely saw some, but not a lot. In the ga- so when I got introduced to like the gauchos or the idea of the gauchos, I was in southern uh, Chile. Yeah. In that southern part of Chile, that mountain range is gnarly, and there's a bunch of lakes down there, about three quarters of the way down. In the in the gaucho, like they they gave away land down in southern Chile, like they did in Alaska years ago. Right. It was like because you couldn't get to it, they just wanted people to be down there, so they gave away land. But those Chilean people, they couldn't go get supplies in Chile. It was easier to just cross over into Argentina. Right, just right over the mountains. Yeah, and that's the gauchos over there were like the last, you know, really, really rural gauchos yeah. in that area. Where like, I guess that was the last inhabited, inhabited place, like Alaska, you know, like that part of Chile where it was just remote, hard to get to. Yeah, that I, I think I read a book about that. I wish I could remember what that was called, but it, it was a guy that had gone down there and lived and he, in the 90s, and he talked about how those people still lived like it was like in the 1800s. Yeah, I mean, the, roads, the, the road that I was on, the Carretera Austral, was a horse trail until like 20 years ago or some shit, yeah. you know, like where they finally like made a road that you could drive down. And <laughs> get a vehicle down. insane that like that recent it was only know? 20 years ago yeah i mean and there's a lot of i mean it's developed quite a bit since then mm-hmm. uh, and maybe it was longer than that but not much not much longer than that i mean it was but you could drive in from the the argentinian side yeah. so like there was that access but the road that goes through there now i mean it's fucking gorgeous um, oh, i'd love to get down there someday yeah that country is it's nice I want. I just never could find any ranches or anything that would let me work. But you know, when people are that rural or remote, then it's not like they got an email or yeah, Instagram. Yeah, it's not that they them. wouldn't let you. You just have to like go knock on their I, door. I'd have to just show up and <laughs> yeah. say, like, will you, roll. will you feed me and I'll yeah. sleep on the ground and let's do some cool shit together. Yeah, but, I'm sure it's down there. Yeah. So Sweden, what do they do in Sweden? In Sweden, they. A lot of the farms there are really small. Like they, 
<clears throat> 10, 20 cows kind of in your like back pasture thing. Nobody owns a bunch of land to run like big ranches. So okay. the family I worked for was an exception because they uh, leased an entire military base. And so the military had this big, I don't, I couldn't even tell you how many acres it was, tens of thousands. So, and they leased or they used that land to practice. It was like where they ran tanks across it and did military okay. drills. Yeah. And so they didn't want that grass like hip high when they're trying to do stuff out right. there. Instead of paying somebody to cut it. Yeah. They just bring a bunch of cows in. Crazy. So the family I worked for, we were just running on government land and we were the only, to my knowledge, the only people in Sweden that used horses to move cows around and they had nobody all, else had even had the need to. No, they, they didn't need them. If people had horses in Sweden outside of this family, they were like pets or like jumping horses. Interesting. And stuff like that. So they couldn't even go buy these horses. So were they use. like, you know, feeding, you know, you move them from one pasture, like grazing the pastures, they have it yeah. separated? And yeah, lots of fences and stuff, and we'd just move them from one to the next, move them around. There was a a few times where we ran into military guys that were out like we weren't ready for it and we're driving cattle and they just like start popping out of bushes and stuff and no full way. camo because we drove we since we didn't know they're there we'd just drive a bunch of cattle right through the middle of their drill and <laughs> <laughs> sorry guys and oh, so, i hope you don't got any minds <laughs> yeah uh, they would they had a pit where they would chuck grenades practice throwing grenades mm -hmm. and we could always hear them like practicing over there or tanks we'd there, there was quite a few times we'd be pushing cattle down the road and then here comes a huge huge ass tank rumbling the ground coming past us and we'd have the to horses like that they hated it yeah they were not a fan because i didn't i'd never been around tanks tanks are really loud i never i won't like they've never been around a tank. I'm pretty sure they've just got, they're just like straight piped. They're diesel, <laughs> yeah. and they're they've got huge diesel motors in them. So you can hear a tank coming from pretty far off. Hmm. And the, I mean the tracks are loud too, but their engines. That's kind of were, intimidating, huh? Oh yeah, you hear the grumble of those things from a long ways away. Interesting. Yeah, so it was. We were basically in the middle of a, a fake war the whole time we were trying to do stuff in Sweden. Yeah. What kind of cattle was that? Those were like the more typical breeds you see around here. So Angus, Charlet, uh, Semmental. You ever do any like milk cows? I did a little bit uh, in Africa. To, in Africa? Yeah. I, I, spent, <laughs> I bet I, they got the same standards as over here, don't they? <laughs> not quite. <laughs> Not quite, but they they do have some, you know, they're getting a lot of the technology we use for dairy over there, so. Dairy, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah, and, and but in Sweden, I, I did visit a, a dairy in Sweden, but because labor is so expensive in Sweden, they their income tax is like ridiculously high. It's like 50% or something like that for everybody. So to have employees, for them to live a good life, you have to pay them a ton of money. And so most a lot of stuff in sweden they tried to phase people out as much as possible use yeah. as few employees as possible sounds like my uncle yeah <laughs> just did just stack wagon <laughs> fuck y'all <laughs> yeah but this so the dairy i went to was all automated i think okay. one guy ran it a robot milked the cows like the the feeding was done on 
like conveyor belts and stuff like that, so you didn't have to put out any feed Whoa. for them. It was all robot and and you know technology. Just because that was the it. only way to feasibly do it. Yeah, it was cheaper than to keep the milk at a price where people could drink milk. Yeah, to instead of having two or three guys to run that little dairy, it was probably cheaper to just put in all that technology and just the owner would push buttons. I mean, it's crazy to see like, you know, how valuable food is but yet how little money there is to be made in food, you know? And, like, right. a lot of it is subsidized by the fucking government, you yep. know? Like, it's such an insane industry. Yeah. This, uh, it really is. It's a pretty upside-down system. Yeah. People, yeah, yeah, I mean, society can't exist without regular food. Yeah, and, like, food. the farms in, the, in America that are, like, making lots of money are kind of like that, you know? It's, yeah. like, very not involved you know right they're fucking i hate to say it but you know in cages practically just fattening them up yeah you know? some some industries are like that and or even like farming is you know they've got robot tractors now and you've got these cornfields where there's not a single plant growing in them besides just corn like there's no mixture of different crops or anything it's it's a yeah, the yeah. tractor's on satellite driving those straight lines. Yeah, perfectly straight lines. Dude sitting in there reading a book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's that's the way it's going, and it's unfortunate. I read uh, I read uh, Yvonne Sherrard's uh, book, Let My People Go Surfing. He's the guy who founded Patagonia, the okay. clothing company. And I thought it was really interesting, the last page of that book. He was saying, because he's obviously a super environmentally conscious person. Yeah, I went to a park that he put, you know, donated, like yeah. bought a bunch of land in Patagonia and now and just, it's a national park. Right, yeah. So he's really, like he's a guy that seems like he sees all sides of it. Mm -hmm. And he said in the last page, that, or in the last chapter, he said the only way he foresees the earth, us continuing to do what we do here at a, in any sustainable way is that we need to be done with monocropping and be like, like he said there should be animals grazing on everything we could possibly put them on because animals are like the most sustainable way. They deposit nitrogen back into the soil a lot of times if it's done right. And he was like, we should be grazing, you know, all these cornfields you see out there should be, you can plant corn, but you should have like livestock grazing in between it and stuff instead of just planting one of the exact same crop over and over yeah. and over again there and killing everything else around it it should be a mixture of stuff and the cattle should be grazing it and we should be using what or cattle sheep goats whatever you know livestock you want to use which was interesting to me because he's he's probably somebody that is he certainly is way more intelligent when it comes to that sort of stuff yeah. and i was like that sounds cool to me yeah i like this guy's approach <laughs> yeah i can get behind that mm -hmm. yeah so i mean what so these farms are they uh you know a lot of like big ranches around here you know the the ranch is not what's making the money to mm -hmm. sustain the ranch yeah you know how is how is that in the other countries i mean yeah there's less of that yeah like because it's like either you a lot of ranches around here either you made your money elsewhere and just bought a ranch or it's coming out of the ground yeah on the coming ranch out of the ground it's coming out of the ground the or 
solar panels or wind turbines, wind turbines or what something a, now. but rarely do the cattle pay the bills. Yeah. And the places that do pay the bills with the cattle are usually not doing so great. They're not bringing in out of towners to... Yeah. Well, they are. They're bringing in aliens to... Yeah, because that's the only people they can afford to pay. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, it's a pretty rough system. But in... Uh, yeah, I didn't see that a lot in other uh, countries. The, no, it's, the, it's sustaining the farm that they're working on. Yeah, the, the, the livestock can can p actually pay the bills in a lot of those places. Yeah. And so it's, and, and a lot of people live, I think part of that is in all, a lot of these other countries, we're in the United States, we're so far removed from agriculture. Like a lot of people are four, five, six generations from the last time their family produced their own food. So if you live in a city or whatever, mm -hmm. like everybody used to have gardens, everybody used to have a pig in the backyard that they'd butcher every year. They knew where their food came from. They knew how it was made. They had knew a the hand in it. Yeah, they knew how much work it took to mm -hmm. put it. And in a lot of those countries, that's still true. Like yeah. you, those people, even if they do live in the city, they're probably like first generation. They, their grandpa still is out there working his garden and stuff to, mm -hmm. to feed himself. So they're, we as Americans and Europe's kind of the same way have gotten so far away from where all this stuff comes from that it's, you know, it's, and it's not even necessary. Like if you're born in New York City and it was seven generations ago that your family was farmers, it's not really their fault that they don't know how farming goes. It's just how society has, yeah, yeah. you know, as a whole has pushed these people. And yeah, it's not a fault. It's just like a condition. Yeah, you just don't know any better. Mm -hmm. So you don't. And some people don't want to, a lot of people don't care to go find out where all this stuff comes from, how it's done, how much work it takes. Because, man, feeding yourself, if you got to grow a garden and raise animals and do all that to feed you, that's a full-time job pretty yeah. much, pretty close for one person. So it's, people think well, everything. Well, it's just more efficient to do it for a group of people too, you know, right. while you're at it, you know. Yeah, and we've gotten to the point now where it's just, Farms and ranches are so specialized that they, like we were saying, robots and and satellite imagery and all this stuff like that, they've become so specialized that most people don't have to farm. They don't have to do anything to feed themselves. No. Go to the grocery store. Yeah, and I think that, like, <clears throat> you know, it's not seen as, like, worthy of time of somebody who is, you know, if you're going to do something with your life. You know, yeah. like, just as you're taught as a kid, you know, right. like you're going to go do something. Like, you're, there's no pride given or, you know, it's, it's given in some areas, but like, you know, even like with like welding or just like trades, you know, like yeah. people, like that's like, that's only if you have to, you know, instead right. of like, you know, inspiring people to just go out there and like be a part of society, you know, and it's not worried about keeping up with the Joneses, but you know, contributing to this beautiful thing we're all a part of. Yeah. There's not a lot of, you know. Yeah, the people don't, there's there's no, like, pride or nobody sees success in just getting by. Yeah. Which producing... Not nobody, a, but, yeah. But a, the, majority. the majority of people don't see because, well, that was what America was built on, like, build bigger, better, faster, stronger, and, you know, people chase that dream of getting a bunch of money or, you know. You know the thing, I don't know what, what excuse, I guess building America something that was like revealed to me recently uh, in a book which one was it I've been on a kick of like 
1800s. You know, I read Blood Meridian. Oh, it's a great book. So good. Like on that trip, when I would be camping, I'd just be listening to that shit. Like, yeah. I mean, I would listen to it a bunch. It's such a good one. But I just did nine years in India, and I just started a new one called uh, the the Rising Moon, something. Anyways, but what was brought to my attention is like the frontiersmen, like the mountain men of America, you know. Like that was kind of like the the influence of the Indians of Northern America with the Europeans, you know, the trappers. And like that's one thing that we still have in our culture today in America, like the hunting yeah. and the fishing. Like that, I haven't seen that in other countries I go to. Like that's not something they do for fun or right. joy. With that, we do we we did like salvage that from the Native Americans, you know, yeah. like yeah, the like hunting and the fishing, the conservation of the planet, you know, to do those things. Where most conservation, not most, but a lot of conservation is like, don't kill the fucking animals. Yeah, you know? like we're like there is that American tradition of hunting and fishing. Yeah, that definitely came from, you know, the lifestyle of the Native Americans, or at least that's what I believe. And, yeah. Yeah, or yeah, exactly. Like that, it's something now that we do for fun that used to be a- absolutely necessary. Necessary. And I think that like taps into something way deeper in our animal brain. I, I'm a big hunter. I, I spend a whole month of October every year up in the mountains in a tent, just chasing around mule deer, trying yeah. to. Sh- I'd love it, but that like that's a reset for me. I love being up there and just like cooking on a fire. You're away from everything and. People, a lot of people have lost that, but it, we've luckily held on to it some that, you know, people still put their own Well, meat. down in South America, they, they haven't, right? Right. Like, one thing I noticed, there's not a lot of animals down there. Like, yeah. the diversity of animals. There might be a lot of animals, but it's like those fucking emu-looking things, the yeah. guanacos, uh, armadillos. Yep. You know, when you look at where that place is on the on the globe, like, compared to Alaska, where there's, like, caribou mule deer fucking bear moose moose like there's a lot of animals up there but that has a maybe not in alaska as much but like at least in northern america like that has a lot to do with conservation like us actively you know making sure these animals have a place to live we're down there if they had them they wiped them out a long time ago and nobody cares to like there's not like a hunting tradition like i was traveling around with my fly rod yeah. And fishing all these rivers down there. And there's tons of rainbow and brown trout. And they introduced those like 10, 12 years ago yeah, to try even... and incentivize like tourism, but it never really caught on. Like yeah. the people of South America don't care to like go fishing for fun. Like yeah. when I would see somebody with a fishing pole, I would like chase them down <laughs> or they would chase me down because they're like, oh, fuck. Oh, no, you're we, a fisherman you know, too. Like, yeah. It was like, it was pretty cool. It was like seeing somebody on a chopper up here. You know, you yeah. come down like, dude. <laughs> we got to uh, talk. But, you know, it just made me think about, like, you know, how North America is different in that aspect. Yeah. How we do value that, you know, that. That's exact. That's a good that observation. Lifestyle. And I think it, it's a due to that, you know, the Native Americans influence on the, yeah. the Europeans as they came over here and moved across the land. Yeah. They saw how valuable that was to well, be they, good at that. They saw the entertainment in it, too, or at least yeah. that's the value in it you know yeah. it's like honestly only things are only here because they're worth money to some degree you know yeah. like everything has a price yeah everything has a price but that's also transitioned into like 
creating a space for those animals to live so that money can be generated from yeah. them. You know, like, like that's the reason there's any animals in Africa from the way I understand it. You know, yeah. like most of the wild game over there is on private land. You yeah, know, and they're high, high fence ranches that they just... Have you done any time in Africa? Yeah, yeah, I lived in, lived in South Africa. Uh, I did some hunting over there on... Really? On a friend's ranch, yeah. We I shot a couple springbuck, which are, they're kind of like antelope. Well, they are an antelope species, but shot a couple of them and a mountain reed buck. Nothing like huge, yeah. no, like big game just, animals. Just but, roaming around Africa with a gun would be sick. Oh, it was so much. That was, that's one of my favorite Knowing memories that there was from something there. you could shoot. Yeah. So with those, uh, what a cool story from over there was I was, so that when we went out springbuck hunting, we just parked our trucks in camp and grabbed a gun and we just kind of walked out and walked around. And in this part of South Africa, it was fairly, I wouldn't say mountainous, but pretty steep hills and stuff, okay. rocky. And they are living all down in there. And so we're walking around scouting, trying to find the right ones and stuff. And, um, and was there like, a, was there regulations on it? So this was on private land, and they were... So they had, like, their own, like... Yeah, they they, they were essentially, like, livestock. They okay. They weren't... Uh, I don't... If they were native to there, they no longer run native because there's just so much private ground and people shoot them. So the only way they exist is they protect them for, for exactly what we're talking about, for selling off hunts and stuff. Gotcha. So we, uh, we finally got onto, like, a fairly good spring buck. And I was like, all right, I don't, he said, we're not, we can't get any closer. And that's like a 350 yard shot. That's going to be hard, but. What gun do you got? I was using a 300 wind mag. Okay. So it's, it's big capable. gun. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, all right, man, I guess I'll give it a try. And, uh, so I took a shot and I, and I missed just high over the top of them. And I was just heartbroken. Did you or did you just miss? I just missed. And. That he looked at, he's like, oh, I'm so, I had that thing dialed in for, like, he messed with the scope to dial it in for that distance, and some, he said he did the wrong amount of clicks or he something. He was just making you feel better as probably I probably just missed. <laughs> <laughs> so, I straight up missed this thing. So, I was heartbroken, and the next day we get up early, and it was our last day to hunt, and I was like, man, I'm not going to get anything, this sucks, we walked around so much for nothing. And uh, the sun's coming up, big burning red sunrise. And there's these big like kind of cliffs out in the distance, like big red rocks. And and we saw a spring buck coming up and he was walking towards us. And he's like, all right, we're just gonna lay down on this rock, get your gun up, like propped in a good position. And I'll just keep giving you the yardage and you wait until it gets up close because he's coming right at us. So I lay down and I'm watching him through the scope and I started hearing this kind of rumble in the distance. It sounded like a, like a semi or s- like something, a tank. or a tank. Yeah, <laughs> I had no idea what it was. But we're in the middle of nowhere. I was like, what could that be? But I'm trying to focus. My adrenaline's pumping. I'm trying to focus, and it just keeps getting louder and louder. And I look over at my buddy, who's, and I was like, what, what is this? And I look back through the scope, and it's starting to get fairly close, like right in shooting range. And then it really goes off, and I realized it was a pride of lions. Like every morning, oh, they. I was thinking elephants. No. A pride of fucking lions yeah. is rolling up on you. They're they. I guess every morning it's kind of like a, 
roosters do their thing in the morning, those lions, when they'd wake up, they'd like they'd go stretch. For a and, dog. Yeah. They, well, I didn't see them. I could just hear them roaring. No way. As a pride. Like oh, all roaring. Together. Roaring. Yeah. Roaring, not running. I was okay. No, not running. So I couldn't see them. I just, I was like, this is straight out of Lion King. Like, what? The, and you could, once they really started roaring, I realized they're like right on the other side of the hill from us. And I've only got three bullets in this gun. You're fixing to waste one on a spring and, buck. And I'm like, I looked over at him. I was like, Roche, I'm not shooting that thing. Because we're just ringing the dinner bell. We're going to have blood all over yeah. us. And I'm going to have two <laughs> shots. And there's a pride of lions on the other side of this hill. And he's like, don't worry about it. Just shoot it. I said, no, I don't want to shoot this thing anymore. I'm done hunting. I, want, like, I, I do not want to fight with lions. And he's, he's like, no, I'm telling you, just shoot, just shoot the fucking thing. And I was like, man, I don't want to. He's like, fine, if you're going to be a coward about it, there's a 15-foot there's a fence on the other side of that hill, and that's a game preserve right there. So there are lions right there, but they can't get here. And he's like, I was just going to let you see how far you'd take it. But he said, we're totally safe. There's a fence right there. No way. And I was like, oh, all right, I guess. And so I looked through the scope and dropped the spring buck. It was pretty cool but i'll never forget just like shaking laying on that rock in the morning listening to him roar and like right on the other side of the hill Fuck. yeah it was awesome that's that's the kind of stuff that like taps into you in a different way that yeah. imagine guys doing that a thousand years ago with a spear trying to kill those That'd be wild just to feed their family yeah yeah so necessity I loved Africa. It was a cool place to... Yeah, what kind of work did you do? Were you working on this ranch? Uh, this, the, this ranch that we were hunting on, that my friend was a veterinarian, and it was one of his friends from vet school owned that ranch. So he just invited us out to hunt. We weren't doing any work there, but I did a couple... I worked on a couple ranches down there. I spent, like, a few days on that dairy farm, um, hung out with them, learned a bunch about like the local tribes and people with them. And um, then then I went to like a cattle slash sheep ranch and that was a huge like 30, 40,000 acre place and just worked with the manager on that Shit. place. Um, and he, he t I helped him for like a month and a half just every day going out, helping him work cattle, helping him work sheep. And, uh, and then I eventually went up to northern south africa like right on the namibia border and it is super hot up there it's That's desert where i want to go it's straight up desert and they i lived right on the orange river and the only reason agriculture exists there is they've got these huge pumps that pump water up out of the orange river and they irrigate so like if you were looking from a helicopter it's just desert it's, the, it's actually the start of the kalahari desert yeah it's the desert and then there's all these like green corn and bean fields and everything right along the edge right of the river. Along the river. And that was it like the out river there. Basin. They'd have like brown hyenas and stuff come in, steal sheep in the middle of the night. It was, I mean, you're right on the edge of the wild right there. And so they, uh, I, I lived up there for about a month or a month and a half probably. Um, I was, yeah, it's just wild being like, you're, cause it's, so, like there's safaris and then there's the actual wild Africa yeah. and those animals like brown hyenas I guess or I never got to see one but they're no joke they're telling me that they had like a, one of the most powerful bites in the animal kingdom 
Really? So they can like just with one chomp just like crush an entire sheep skull. And so they'd come in and just peel sheep off in the That'd middle of the night. That'd be a fucking gig. Shoot the hyenas. Shooting hyenas. We did do a lot of jackal hunting, which is similar to coyote hunting. Okay. We'd, uh, yeah, we'd, we'd try and call them like people do, or we'd just like sit out there with spotlights because that one of those ranches I was on was how they were lambing at that time. So there's all these little tiny baby lambs running around. Easy prey for and, a jackal. Yep, they'd come in and pick them off, and so we had a guy that we paid. He was a professional jackal hunter. And it was just this old old black guy that would, he'd come with his horse and he had like a pack of like 40 dogs with him. Oh, and shit. he would just, like he had, he had some of them were like tracking dogs, hound dogs. He didn't have GPS on these things. No, either, no, did he? no way. I, they didn't have names. They didn't <laughs> listen to anything. It was, I, I wanted to see at the end of the day how he got them all caught because yeah. they're just basically wild animals. How did he show up with them? Like a cow trailer? He's, I don't know. He just rode up on his horse and he'd have a pack <laughs> of dogs around him. No way. I don't know if he was a neighbor and he just rode every day or what, but he, uh, so he had, some of them were hound dogs and they would track down these jackals and find the dens and stuff. Some of them were like greyhound, like, like chase dogs that they'd if they spotted one those dogs would take off and get a hold of it and the rest of them were these little yipping jack russell looking dogs and those dogs were for when they found like a burrow that they were living in they'd send those dogs down in there and those dogs would fight with the jackal and and pull it out just get them out yeah get them out of the so hole was the guy was the black guy doing the killing or were the dogs doing the killing uh, a little of both. A lot of times those dogs would get a hold of a jackal and have it have it held tight and he'd get off his horse and like come up and kill the like jackal. It. He no, he uh clubbed it. Clubbed it. He used a stick. <laughs> um but that guy he had this dog named uh I was tempted to buy this dog off him. His this dog's name was Smoothie. And Smoothie, I don't know what that means in Zulu, but uh, I thought but that, that was, was the actual pronunciation that yeah. you used was smoothie. Smoothie. Okay. Because I asked him about this dog, and he said, Are you oh, speaking the... this language at this point?" No, no, no. no. Zulu is way hard to to yeah, yeah. understand. But my the guy, the ranch manager I was working with, he spoke like four languages, so he could translate. So I asked about that dog, and the reason I like smoothie is because smoothie was one rough-looking little Jack Russell, like patches of hair missing off of him, and had like a lion's mane, he had one eye, and was just a wild looking little dog. And uh, the first jackal I ever saw them catch, Smoothie was the first one in the hole, and gets a hold of this jackal. And all you can see is you hear all this snarling and fighting down in the hole, you can't see what's happening. And Smoothie's legs are just sticking straight up in the air, like this. And so the guy gets off his horse and grabs Smoothie's back leg and just picks him up no, There's a jackal, jackal attached, to him. <laughs> attached to him, and then all the other dogs <laughs> grabbed it. But Smoothie was just like the catch dog that would pull stuff out of the hole. Wow! And he'd reach down there, grab his leg, pull him out, and I was like, "Man, I wonder what I could get that dog for." Because I, I obviously too feral to live in town, but that would yeah. be a hilarious dog to travel around with. Yeah, there's a place in Nab Namib Namibia called Death Acre. Yeah, Death Acre. I read about it in a, uh, an article from, it was Meta at the time, now it's Vana. 
these guys. So this stretch of land, it's like a road, trail. It's not a road. It's like a stretch of land. Yeah. Like the a certain time of the year when the swell's right, you know, the ocean's coming in against the the sand dunes or the, you know, the giant sand dunes. Mm-hmm. But it goes, it recedes for a certain amount of hours each day. And you can ride along. It's like fucking 15, maybe it's like 40 miles. You oh, gotta but make you got to make it. This stretch where the fucking, the water comes and starts crashing on those sand dunes. But you're like in between the ocean and these fucking giant mountains. So you just got to rip down that. Rip down that fucking, you know, <laughs> oh, wet sand. That would be sick. But I mean, you got to get there first, too, on a motorcycle, yeah. right? You know, like. <laughs> oh, that'd be so cool. That'd be fucking good, right? So I was talking to this guy. I recently did a, a podcast with some great people. And, uh. I don't know how much I can actually talk about. Well, fuck it. Uh, this guy, Austin, has been filming a documentary. And uh, he was in Africa with Yokin, who's the new CEO of Harley-Davidson. Oh, cool. Yokin has a, a preserve in Africa. Mm-hmm. Wild game preserve. Well, Pan, or Harley-Davidson just came out with the Pan America, that black bike you saw yeah. in the driveway. Their first adventure bike. Well first adventure bike in, in this day and age. Yokin in Austin and like one of the guys, he's like the head of design or he's he's part of the one of the race teams. They go to this preserve with two Pan Americas on crates, right? Oh, that's sick. Yeah. And uh, Yokin and this guy, fuck, I wish I remembered his name, are going to ride these bikes around in Africa. So they show up in crates. The guy puts them together. And the sun's going down, and the dude's just jones. And he's like, fuck, I want to go rip this thing right now. So Austin's like, all right, let me take you out to a spot. And, you know, and there's like uh, fucking elephants or fucking giraffes, whatever. You know, that's like, yeah. they're in the element, right? Right. And, and Austin gets out his drone. The dude just starts ripping through the fucking, you know, the wilderness. He's filming them. Sun's going down, <clears throat> or sun gets down. All right, we got to go back. So Austin's driving this, whatever their safari rig is. Yokin's sitting in the, the passenger seat, whichever side that is. Yeah. And this dude's on the on the Pan America. And Austin's like, follow the lights in front of me and I'll guide you home. Because this guy doesn't know where the fuck he's at. You know? Yeah. And they're driving. And the bike's in front of them. And they're in the fucking safari vehicle. And the dude, Austin sees like a, what he thought was a couple of hyenas run past him. Run past the motorcycle in front yeah. of him. Yeah. And the dude slows down and hits the brakes. Austin's like, what the fuck, you know? And he looks in his rearview mirror. There's a fucking, a lion, mama lion. And those are the cubs in front of this oh. dude. Lion comes up right to the side of this dude on this Pan America and just like, is fixing to just pounce this dude because he's oh. in between the cubs and the fucking mama. Yeah. So Austin lights it up and like uses that safari vehicle and runs that fucking lion off. That dude sees the lion. You know, he's looking at the cubs in front of him. Doesn't realize the lion's fixing to fucking pounce him, you know? Oh, man. He fucking does a donut and rips off the other direction. Just takes off into the night, you know, getting away from that. And yeah. Austin has that lion ran off. And, you know, like, did you film it? And he was like, no, I was driving the vehicle, no. you know? <clears throat> oh, man. And that dude finally comes back, sees their lights, and, you know, they get back. But just like, 
Fuck, that sounds so wild. There is still a lot of wild shit in Africa that you can go see. Yeah. I was told this story by some locals, and I don't know if it's true or if it's like an old wives' tale, but they say if you're out camping, next time I go down there, the plan is we're going to go up to, like, I don't know if we'll go to Namibia or, like, maybe Zimbabwe, somewhere like that. And they just, like, tent camp out there. Because you've got, like... uh, Did you do any camping while you were in Africa? No. No, because South Africa at that time was, like, so dangerous that... All of our, the houses we stayed in had barbed wire around the fence and like security systems and you paid a private police force to be on call because there's so many murders and stuff happening in rural places. So. I thought South Africa was like tame. No, well, they're just more modern, but they've got all kinds of like murder and and like tribal fighting and stuff like that that. So it's still dangerous, really dangerous. Like yeah. Johannesburg has, I think, is one of the highest murder rates in the entire world. Really? So it's a pretty dangerous place. But, they, uh, but the, in South Africa, parts of it, the people are more dangerous than the animals. But you get up away from... <laughs> yeah, like and it out switches. Of, yeah, and the it turns in... more dangerous than it, the people. Exactly. So they, those police forces that you would pay because the police do nothing down there nothing at all so unless you pay them specifically to do a job they yeah so there's private companies that employ they have their own trucks they employ gunmen and they like it say everybody has like if you've got any money at all you put a security system on your house and like the room i stayed in had a solid or not solid steel but like a prison door basically that you'd padlock at night so they couldn't even if they got in the house, they couldn't get into the room. And so they, uh, but, so like if somebody, if the system goes off and that private company gets a warning, they'll call you or whatever and say, we got, you know, just like here, they'll say, we got an alert that there's something happening at, yeah. at your house. And if you say, I don't know who that is, or I don't know, like, you better get out here. Those guys show up, guns blazing, ask questions later, and they will shoot anybody that's on your property. That's their job. That's what you pay them to do. Oh, fuck. Stay in your room. If you yeah, survive. stay down low, and we'll be there in 10 minutes with a guy, a truck full of armed gunmen. So, uh, anyways, so you get out more like in the wilder parts, and that's not so much of a, an issue. And they were saying that if you're camping that you have to brush your teeth before you go to bed because if you're eating meat, which they eat every meal down there if they can, and you've got like pieces of meat stuck in your teeth, that there are stories of hyenas getting in people's tents and biting them in the face because they smell that. Their noses are so good and they can smell that rotting meat in your teeth that they'll bite you right on the face while you're asleep. I mean, surely they can just smell the fresh meat of you yourself you, too, right? I, I'm sure. But that that's why I don't know if it's an old wives' tale, but they were telling but me it's like... it's probably just to get the point across, like... Yeah. You, it's kind of like bear country. Yeah. You know, like... Except for even more severe. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Except for don't there's way just hang your meat over there, clean it out of your fucking teeth and put it over there. <laughs> yeah, while clean you're everything out. Wow. Yeah, so they... Africa is a really cool place. Yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah, how do you, how do you make contact? And I mean, 
now that you've been doing this for a minute, you have like a resume where you can present to people like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm a world traveling fucking cowboy, you right. know? But now you just got to find a place. Now, I guess now you probably just get to pick or choose where you want to like look for stuff to do. But like, yeah. is there, you know, is there is there like an Airbnb for fucking traveling cowboys? You <laughs> no, know? no. That, the way I got to Africa was I went on a bunch of, Facebook groups for like African farmers, young farmers, all this stuff. And I just started posting all over those that I was a young guy from the United States looking for a place to just work and learn about agriculture. And I'd work for free if they'd feed me and give me a place to stay. The majority of people that contacted me from that were telling me that I was an idiot because they're like, you don't understand. People down here will take advantage of you if you do that. And I was like, well, thanks, but no thanks, that's not very helpful. So I just kept looking for other places to go. And one person said, you ought to look up this Future Farmers Foundation. They're they're like a, a, it's a group that what they do is they take kids from rural areas that don't have a ton of education. And if they have interest in agriculture, whatever type you want of agriculture, they have people in those industries that are willing to take those kids on as like interns. Takes advantage of them. And so they, they use, yeah, <laughs> you know, like free labor. <laughs> so they uh, use those kids and those kids learn like yeah, management Yeah, not only use skills. them, but they teach those kids. Yeah, I mean, give yeah. them something to do. They give them something to do. Trying to break in those jail doors in your bedroom. <laughs> exactly. So they, but one after like two years, if they've been learning the whole time, uh, they graduate that program and then they can go off and start their own small farm if they want or go manage one for somebody. Just get employed by the places that we're teaching. Exactly. Them, you know? That's what a lot happens. Hey, stick around here. We got money for you if you keep doing this. Yep. Like the the guy that was translating during all that jackal hunting and all that stuff, he was a product of that. No longer in, in their really, system. Really he was a product of that and, and system. Yeah. He was one of the he was like one of their poster like the poster child because oh, yeah, he, he spoke four languages. Yeah, and that and four is not that many for Africa. A lot of people speak six or seven. Wow. And he but he was managing that guy that he managed for owned like twelve or thirteen different ranches and he was managing all of them. Holy shit. But he grew up no running water, no electricity, dirt floors, cooking over the fire. Grew up with absolutely nothing and i think he had finished high school but that was uh that was about it Probably so he, everything his parents could do was to get him get through him that finish high school yeah so he he told me i think i forget what he said his dad did but it was just some really hard backbreaking labor job and that's what he did his whole life and he said that when he started doing that ranch management job that the day he started his first salary was like almost 10 times what his family made his entire life. So it wasn't a lot by our standards, but the step up for them is huge. So he, like he bought his parents a house and bought like, got electricity run to their house, all that stuff, just by becoming a ranch manager. So here, that job is, you know, you, you don't, it's rare to find a good paying ranch management job. You can probably get by but at the end of 40 years, you really don't have much to show for it. Yeah. But for him, it was just life-changing money. So that's wow. what that program did for kids. And so I, they said I was mentoring or wanted me to mentor them. I mostly just hung out with them and told them stories, and they thought it was cool. So that was 
but because well, that's they, inspirational for those kids at that point, you know, to like, yeah, to get to that point to meet a, a fucking young strapping fellow from the United States, you know. Yeah, I mean that's got the, the it's got to like a confirm or affirm that they're making good decisions, you know, like yeah. that they're going in the right direction. You can do something with it. Yeah, yeah. So it that's what I did with them, and they. Uh, because of their network, they had a huge network of people involved with it that they could just, if I'm like, all right, I've had enough, of I've seen all of this place, I want to go try it, see yeah, somewhere see else. else. They just ship me off down the road to the next place. Wow. And so I got to see a ton of really cool farms and ranches and stuff in South Africa because of them. Good group. That's interesting. Yeah. And you run into any like crazy armed militias? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, there was, well, the one story that's probably <coughs> the craziest, we, we were going from, um, I just jumped in with a cattle buyer who I'd never met, but everybody said he was cool. So I just jumped in with him and I needed a ride like two or three hours to another city. So I just threw my bag in the back and he had a sis, his sister owned a coffee shop like halfway between the two places. So we stopped in there, had a cup of coffee, talked with her for a little bit. And then we uh, just owned a coffee shop. I mean, you say that like you're strolling through Argentina. And there's a coffee shop on the side. Yeah, of the, this you're talking about Africa here, right? Right. So this is where the the South African is being more modernized. Like okay. there, it was kind of in a city, and it was a little, I don't know, little coffee shop where okay. you could stop in. That it was the only coffee shop I ever went to in <laughs> Africa. <laughs> but okay, that puts it into perspective. It was in a touristy area, so okay. they. Uh, yeah, we stop in there for probably 15 minutes, jump back in the truck, drive. We're almost to where we've, the town that I was trying to go to. I was trying to go to Peter Maritzburg. Um, and they, they stopped, there was like three or four cars in front of us stopped that had come to a stop right in front of us. And then we stopped. And it looked like up ahead that there was, the cop had stopped him and way up the road, you couldn't see it that well, but it looked like a semi had like lost a bunch of its cargo. And so we sat there, nobody told us what was going on. We just sat there and waiting for them to reopen the road. And finally, after like 20 minutes, a police officer comes up and he's like, you're all gonna have to turn around. And he said, well, what happened? Why, why can't we go through? And he said, well, what had happened right up there in front of us was a bank truck, an armored bank truck, 12 guys in broad daylight tried to rob that bank truck. So a big shootout happened and the cops showed up and gunned down every one of those dudes. So what looked like dumped off cargo was just bodies all over the highway. And so they were like, yeah, this is gonna take a while to clean up. You gotta go the other way. And we said, oh, okay. So we went the long way around, but yeah. So that's what you're the, saying is you can catch a ride with a guy hauling cattle, but jumping in with the guys hauling money is not, not a, a good, good idea. idea. <laughs> no, I think the bank truck guys were fine, but they just sat there in a shootout in that armored truck like, waiting for the cops to come shoot these guys. Oh, and they shot them all. It seems like overkill here in the United States a lot of the time, but. Yeah. Probably doesn't seem like enough. <laughs> Down there. So how that for You need an army just <laughs> rolling with you. Oh man, yeah, a fucking so, coffee store. Yeah, so that, that that's why I tell that part is because there's only four or five cars in front of us that had just stopped. So had we not stopped for coffee, we probably would have rolled right oh, into that yeah, yeah, gunfight. Yeah but we just got to see the carnage afterwards and turn around and leave. You know, you gotta, you gotta pay attention to those signs. Yeah. 
you know. So if somebody ever asks you to stop for coffee, you probably ought to. I always do. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody says there's coffee, I'm stopping. You know? <laughs> now you said you threw your your luggage in this in this truck. What what what's your like uh, your go to travel kit? You know, because I do a lot of travel. It's a little different. Yeah. You know, I feel like I'm on an iron horse. Yeah. But I roll exactly. around with like what I would imagine they rolled around with back in the day. You know, like with the shit rolled up in a fucking tarp. Yeah. I can lay it on the ground. I can sit on my rolled up tarp as a chair. And yeah. What, what's your go-to package? I mine I mine has evolved. It keeps evolving over time. And I I at first I took a lot more clothes than I really needed to take. Oh yeah, always. And not enough other that's, stuff. That's the amateur move. Yeah. Tons of clothes, so I had like a big like check bag, wheelie bag thing, and then a backpack. And the backpack had like, uh, I don't even remember what all it had, tarps and filter bottles and stuff like that in it. And then the more I traveled, the more I realized like I don't need all of this shit. Yeah, uh, most I, of that shit you think you need, you need something else before you get to needing that shit. Exactly. So now, like even right now in Texas, driving around, I have some like a bag that's the size of a carry-on bag. It's got two pairs of jeans, and probably th four or five shirts, socks, underwear, toiletry, and a book. And that's pretty much what fits in there. And I've been in Texas for a month and a half, and I've not needed any more than that. And then I have my camera bag. You got that big thing on the top. I was like, dude, what's this guy rolling with? You know? <laughs> yeah, that. So that's He's all. He's got a saddle in there. No. What's going on? It's uh, that's full of fly my fly fishing gear, books, and hats. Like I never really needed that thing until I started like peddling all this shit and trying to sell stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So before that, I didn't need all the need that big thing on the roof of my car to hold all that. But because I sleep in that car quite a bit. Like I'll, middle of winter, I've got a bed, like a bedroll in there, and I can just fold down the back seats and stick my feet in the trunk and sleep right there. I've slept oh, yeah. in it at zero degrees, and it's fine. So, um, but now when I travel, like when I went to Mongolia, which was the last big trip I did, that would have, I brought like a, a filter bottle. I had a duffel bag that was waterproof. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a, like a roll top one. Yeah, yeah. So because I knew we would be horseback crossing rivers, and I needed something waterproof. Yeah. So I had my camera, and uh, you know that all the gear that goes with that, and then I had a sleeping bag, and a coat, and probably two shirts, two pairs of pants, just two of two of everything, mm -hmm. and that was pretty much it. I don't. I've gotten to where now. I like. I don't care about dirt bagging it. I'd, even in the United States, like I'm. I'm happy to wear the same shirt five days in a row and yeah. get two weeks out of a pair of jeans like that. Just, it's just unnecessary shit that I don't need in my life. I do that at home. Exactly. <laughs> so it's. 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 Uh. Yeah. And and in the states, it's easier when I'm just rambling around here because everybody's like, oh, you can sleep on the couch, use yeah. the washer if you washer. want to, whatever. So you don't need much. Like, I, I really could, I could take the important stuff out of that car and walk back to Wyoming if I so had yeah, to. So, you, yeah, you've uh, you brought up the camera gear a couple times now. So you filming a lot of this stuff now? Like, how? what do you, you got a YouTube channel? What do you? Yeah, so, well, so it's different now. So I used to, when I was traveling, I was just taking 
photographs. And that wasn't the whole time. It was probably, I think in Sweden was the first time I had a camera. Okay. Because in, in Argentina. Did you have a camera or was it just like running with the phone? No, it was a camera because in, in Australia and Argentina, I'd had one of those crappy old iPhones and I'd take like three pictures and it'd say memory full. So I have almost no pictures of any of that <laughs> stuff. So I got to thinking I probably should have an actual camera for this stuff. So I started taking pictures all throughout all those like journeys and stuff. And then uh, just recently, like right around COVID or just after COVID, video was taken off so much and it's like there's, you can take pictures for memories and stuff, That's but if you want to do any kind of marketing, it's moved a lot to, to video. Yeah. So. Well, just because it's so easy to, like, so easy to do these days, you know? Yeah. Like, you can capture a great video on a phone. Right. So exactly. Good. So I, I still have that, my photography camera, but I bought a video camera uh, probably two years ago. Did you get it like a camcorder or like a it's a sony a7 III so it, it does both yeah but it the video on it is really good so was um, it like a mirrorless or like a dslr it's a mirrorless i had a dslr that was the first camera and i tried to take videos with that but it's just really shaky and it's just not really built for video yeah. so this mirrorless camera is way better and it uh but during COVID and stuff, I couldn't. Really, I traveled around the United States as much as I could, but I couldn't leave to go anywhere. And so the video stuff for me has rolled into. I started making music videos for like cowboy musicians, people that are in like a ranching way of life, because I didn't think that they were getting the exposure they deserved. I knew all of these guys back home that were great musicians, but they're cowboying eight days a week. Yeah. So to get a they don't get the chance to go into town or be found or anything. So I thought, well, I just want to be able to show the world that these guys exist. And I thought I'd do like four or five of those videos to see what people think. And it has just immediately started snowballing. I started with a couple friends and within the first month I had shot 15 different artists. And then by now, I mean, I've been in Texas. I've probably just in the last month and a half, shot videos with like 20, 25 different artists no all over Texas. Um, but I try and keep it in the vein of like, there are a lot of great artists out there that that I think their music is great, but like the vein I try and stay in is people that work in agriculture. Like if they're gonna sing songs about ranching or tractors or whatever, yeah. you better have spent a lot of hours in a tractor before you write a song about it. Yeah. I don't do tractor songs, but that's just an example. <laughs> but that's the kind of guys that I want to like document. Yeah. So it's like a mixture of well-known guys that come from that background and then people that nobody's ever heard of. I really enjoy finding those guys that are from the middle of nowhere and nobody's ever heard their music. And if I can put them next to, like I shot some video with Coulter Wall not that long ago. If I can put Coulter up there, everybody knows who he is and they pay attention to the channel. And then right next to him, I put some guy that, some farm kid yeah. that doesn't get out and play shows. Then that kid gets seen by a lot more I'm people. I'm doing the same thing with my t-shirt program. Yeah. So I feature different motorcycle shops from around the country, send out a t-shirt every month. Yeah. You know, and I love to feature the shops that are just like, you know, they're just doing full service. They're fucking just working every day, keeping yeah. people on the road. But to really, you know, those guys don't have social media presence. They don't, you know, they're not, 
they're not selling me more teachers, right? Like they're not mm-hmm. helping. But when I put like somebody like Indy and Larry in the mix, you know, it's like it brings more attention to to spread to all the other guys that exactly. you know, may not be getting that attention. Yeah. And uh, I see, yeah, it's great. Because when you're working with your hands every day, all day, like the last thing you're thinking of is, I should make a TikTok about yeah, this. Yeah, well, that's the thing is what I found doing this podcast is like looking for guests early on, you know, using the, the social media. The people that are good at social media are, are good at social media. Yeah. They're, they're good at showcasing what they're acting like they're good at. And maybe not even acting, but they're good at showcasing yeah. whatever it is they kind of do. Yep. And the people that are good at doing those things are not good at showcasing them exactly. on social media. Exactly. So there is a niche and there's a spot for people sharing those stories like you're doing. You know, mm-hmm. like, and I feel like that's what I try to do here is just, you know, I don't, you know, I don't even pay attention to the analytics because I'm a competitive person. Right. You know, if <laughs> yeah. I start looking to see what people like listening to or, you know, I just talk to people that I want to talk to, you know, right. like. And uh, just sharing stories. Exactly. Yeah, I, that's the same same with the music stuff. I I just it's the music I listen to, and it's the music I like. Yeah. And so if other people don't like it, that's that's fine. But that's how I got into it. I love listening to these guys play music. I wish I could hear it more. Well, if I just go document it and gotcha. put it out there, yeah. you get more people get to hear it. Because surely there's people just like you and me out there that feel the exact same way about that yeah just, they've heard enough of the it's water just hard down. getting it you know hard finding it and there's so much good music out there and a lot of the stuff that that really has passion in it those are the guys that don't have time to you know or don't even care about yeah putting in the effort it takes to share it with the broader audience yeah because exactly. their their passion you know is really in something else that's just a way of sharing it through music exactly you know? They're really caring about, you know, something else. Yeah, and and in general, musicians are, unless they've gotten big enough just off of luck or off talent or whatever, they, you know, music is their art, and that's their art, and that's what they love doing. So they're terrible at social media or, yeah. you know, thinking to do that stuff. Or if you're building stuff with your hands, it's the same same thing. Like yeah. the, those, yeah. That's the same same type of people doing doing art in their own ways, and their their art is not video, and video has become my art and documenting cool. that stuff. Well, it's a great time to be getting into that, you know, yeah. and, and learning it and taking advantage of, you know, the internet specifically. Like you can put out whatever the fuck you want. Like it still blows my mind that like podcasts work the way they do, where there's no like governing force. Yeah, you know, like. I can literally upload this for free and people can listen to it for free. Right. There's really not many other places that are like that. Like, I mean, YouTube, Mm -hmm. you know, but like, as far as like making music, you know, like there's like, there's money walls or there's people tagging advertising onto things. Like like YouTube, they're trying to like put advertising on it, you know, or like, um, that's one thing I'm fixing. I'm fixing to start doing video, Mm -hmm. you know, just, set up a couple cameras, yeah. pay somebody else to edit it. And I don't want to like monetize my YouTube channel, you know, mm-hmm. like let them put ads in it. Yeah. So I'm, right now I'm like in the process of brainstorming up, working with, you know, different uh, companies or individuals 
to like make my own little like hey make your own little ad and I'll play that. I would rather support you yeah. than let YouTube put some random fucking sprite commercial or whatever <laughs> yeah. it is. Yeah. You know, like, like yeah. I, I would rather somebody else benefit that I support in you know, like I've just the way I've always lived, like even if I'm working for some every job I've ever worked for I supported what that owner was doing you know, exactly. with his money. What he was like, you know, the first big job I had was working on a nursery. And that dude, he spent all his money on fucking, you know, his roping horses. You yeah. know, like, and then he was roping right outside the nursery, you know, yeah. whenever he wasn't working. I'm like, all right, I stand behind that. You know? like, <laughs> right. You know, and even the companies I work with right now, like I, uh, you know, I support what they do with their money. Exactly. You just don't have that control and you just let it open in the in the podcast is a you know i've been blessed that you don't have to pay for a spotify app you don't have to pay yeah. for an itunes app like spotify if you're listening to music they'll put in advertising but you can listen to podcasts on spotify and they don't ever there's no they don't mess with it at all yeah there's nothing yeah i agree that's that's kind of the next step with my youtube is trying to get i want to get brands on board that yeah. you know are want to support that kind of well, art I and I guarantee would wave. you there are companies that want to be associated with things right in your realm you know, yeah finding them will be the hard part but there are people that want to be associated with you know artists that are working and making shit happen are you familiar with uh oh fuck what's his name the oh the swamp fucking what's the name of the band this guy, he did a documentary where he traveled around talking to artists that were farmers. And uh, Oh, really? Oh, shit. It's a fucking badass band. Swamp Blood is the name of a song. Uh, oh, shit. I'll look it up. Because it's a really... He's got a couple of bands. Him and his wife travel around as a music group. You may know him once I say it. Swamp Blood. What's the name? Really good shit. The where's my library at? Hold on, we're gonna get to it. This is good because these guys are fucking great. Blaze Foley, dude, I got some good ones in here. <laughs> the goddamn gallows. Oh man. So I'm just gonna put in the swamp. The legendary Shack Shakers. Oh, I've never heard of them. Oh dude, the lead singer, he's like one of the most animated motherfuckers you've ever seen in your entire life. <laughs> but him and his wife have another music project and they did a documentary, like a full on, like full length documentary where they traveled around the country, mainly like in the Bible belt. Yeah. Like really seeing some of the like professions, if you will, that have kind of gone by the wayside because they're not needed anymore, whether it's like a butcher or like right. a, a, even like, I think church leaders, like they, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's really interesting. And I've, you know, it's been a year since I thought about it, you know, much less seen it. Uh, but that's, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll get that more information for that. Yeah, you'll have to text me that. That sounds right up my, that's, you know, similar to what I'm doing. No, it is. Because um, it's, you know, like a lot of these, there's still guys that I've been trying to track down for six, eight months. There was a guy that I've lives in Central Texas that I 
just this time. I was like, man, I'm right in your backyard. If we could get together and just shoot a few videos, I'd love to. And he got back to me like four days later. He's like, ah, oh, sorry, man, I was out feeding cows and trying to get the kids in bed. And he's like, you know, it's like life on the ranch is Well, it's, dude, and that busy. shit also makes him nervous, too. It's like, oh, yeah. You know, like. People get nervous over that stuff. Fucking, I mean, that's one thing I've shied away from having camera. I've been doing this for over five years now. And specifically did it without cameras to begin with because I know the majority of the people I talk to are. They get you know, nervous. Yeah, just, just would, maybe not nervous, but just uncomfortable, you know? Like, right. They're not used to a microphone, much less a camera in their face, you yeah. know? And uh, like I said early on, my biggest thing with this has always been just making sure everybody's as comfortable as can be. Just have, yeah, that's a big part of it. I just, And I, I'm sure that's a lot. I know that that's a lot of photography and video is like making the, the subject, for lack of a better term, comfortable so that they can be themselves so that you can capture something genuine. That's exactly right. I was just... Hanging out with my my friend Bo down Speaking there. Speaking of the comfortable, keep talking. I'm just gonna pee on the tire. Alright. I was I was just talking or hanging out with my friend Bo down in the hill country and he had a radio show for years. And so he he was he's kind of mastered the art of interviewing people. And so he helped me with some of these videos and he's like, Man, you've got to like talk to these people and get them feeling comfortable before you just like ram a camera in their face. Because once you've got them like talking about life and just bullshitting and like you're talking about regular real things, you get a whole different person out of that as opposed to somebody that's like, all right, show up, sit down here, look pretty, ready, go. So yeah, it's a big, uh, it's a big part of it, getting. Yeah, and on top of that, like, uh, yeah, it opens them up, but you could also use that for the video. Purposes, yeah, you know, like kind of like almost like a small documentary about like this person, and you know, it's like with any kind of art, the art isn't what sells. Yeah, it's the story. Yeah, right? it's like you know, compelling people to care about what this guy's singing about. You yeah, know? and if you capture a little, you know, a little bit of this guy's home life and you know maybe why he wrote the song that he's singing like it exactly just, it gives people you know it gives people some information so that they can care right you know yeah and that that one of my favorite documentaries i've ever movies in general i've ever watched is hard-worn highways so good such so good and, it, and part of it is because those guys in that were nobodies at the time and turned into freaking legends. legends but even some of the ones that didn't turn into legends like what about that studio, that studio song where those guys, and there's like, they're playing the piano. It's like, I don't even know what the name of that band is, but that song is so fucking bad, dude. Yeah. So those, but so I I remember that as I I watched that documentary probably a year ago for the first time. A year ago? Yeah. I had no idea it existed. What about David Allen Coe driving his fucking tour bus? His own around, tour bus. Dude. Yeah. Oh god. With his big old hat full of feathers and like that. But I remember that when I shoot. So I've got like terabytes upon terabytes of footage that I've shot that I don't use right now. But it's not lost on me that that's going to be really right. cool in 20 years. Yeah. Because who knows where some of these guys I'm shooting now like. I, a lot of the people I shoot are pretty young, and and that's probably what's 
the reason why they're not bigger than they are is just because they haven't spent a lot enough time going out playing on the road and stuff so they just haven't been found yet yeah. so those any one of them that could get really big one day all of this footage that we shoot the behind the scenes stuff all that you know i've not like sat down with an individual artist and documented their day-to-day -day life because i usually don't have time to do that but like any of the footage that i've got is going to be it's going to be so cool to look at this stuff in 20 years yeah absolutely and that hardware and highways made me think of that like man i can't i don't delete anything yeah. it's all just stuck on hard drives and hang on to it forever. You just gotta hang on to that. Make sure it doesn't go corrupt or something. Yeah, back it up as many places as you can. Yeah, for real. Cause it's, yeah, it's a cool. So right now all this stuff is going out on a YouTube channel? Yeah, the YouTube channel is called Dusty Vaquero. Okay. And uh, it's separate from, like a, the Lost Cowboy is all the, the international traveling, the book stuff, branch and stuff, that's all kind of under the Lost Cowboy. So you haven't been filming any of that stuff? I have some, but not as much as the music. Yeah. At least not with like the fancy 4K camera. Like a lot of that's more just day-to-day -day cell phone kind of footage or stuff I had in my phone from my travels mm -hmm. years ago that I just post up there. And then Dusty Vaquero is just strictly the music stuff. Wow. Yeah, so it's... It's, uh, any up, any up-and-coming artists we need to be paying attention to? Oh man, I think all of them are great. I, uh, I've got, I'm working on a project right now with a, a guy out of the Panhandle of Texas. His name is Brennan Scott Green. Okay. And he, uh, he's a hell of a guitar picker. Writes some really cool songs, but he has this fascination with like old folk instruments from all over the world. Okay. So he's got a few songs that have didgeridoo on them. Oh, yeah. And he plays the didgeridoo as he's just picking the fuck out of this guitar. Really? And there's a vi if you want to see, like I videoed the whole thing, there's a song on my YouTube channel that we put out and it's been one of the most successful ones. And he's, that guy, I just got off the phone with him before I came over here. I could hardly hear him because there's cows bawling. People are yelling numbers at him like, hey, get that one up here. And like he's on a horse talking to me on the phone. Incredibly talented musician, but that's what he does every day. He's yeah. out just ranching and breaking colts and stuff like that. So he's a, yeah, he's a really good one. Di very different sound. Like it's, it is country music, but on the edge of it. Yeah. Um, then, uh, there's a young kid out of Southern Colorado that I just met recently. His name's Cade Hoffman, and I think, I think Cade Hoffman's going places for sure. He's uh, he's got a very unique voice. Um, I'll just say that you'd have to listen to him to kind of. But his Spotify, he's just put out a couple songs, and people are just eating it up. Nice. He's just a farm kid from Southern Colorado. Um, and then one of my really good buddies, and yeah, I'm sure you'd like this stuff. Maybe you've even heard of him, but. His name's Kellen Smith, and he's a rancher from up around, uh, n up in northern Wyoming. Okay. And he's a, his favorite band is Pantera, but he's on a horse every day. Yeah. And he's like tall, skinny dude, cowboy hat on, covered in tattoos. Like his band used to be just like a Grateful Dead cover band, and they rock out. And they're, so that he tours around with Kenny Fedler, who's another like pretty hard rock like cowboy group and so those those three guys i mean there's probably i could sit and talk about that for 
an hour, just like That's all these cool. up and so you've comers. Been, but you've been pursuing this around the country for like since 2020, you say? Uh, it was. I only started the Dusty Vaquero stuff last May. Oh, really? Okay. So less than a year that I've been doing all this music stuff, and I think there's there's like well over a hundred different videos up there now. No shit, you and, definitely have shot some in Texas because there's oh, definitely some bunch. Of those guys in Texas. I could, being in Texas has been overwhelming because there's just <laughs> like artists crawling out of the woodwork, and they're all really good. Like they're. Yeah. Like those three guys are just the first that popped into my mind, but you could go on that channel and just go down the list. And some of it's like old swing cowboy music, like dance hall stuff. If you're into that, cool, there's a bunch of that on there. But I like I also like hard rockin' music as well. Yeah. So like some it's not a lot of people that cover the whole spectrum, but there's In Texas there are. Yeah, and the red dirt scene here is huge which is like pretty rocking but still country music yeah. and so like those there's guys all along that that spectrum and they're so if you check out the channel there dude so i had a guy on the show it's probably been three years his name's joe hub baker you know this guy i don't think so you know joe hub joe hub I've, i feel like i've heard of him you'll know this guy he, he used to work the uh the rodeo down in the stockyard is the one that happened every week. It's a trick. Oh, down in Fort Worth? In Fort Worth, yeah. He's got a bitchin' little purple pan head. <laughs> and uh, we were talking. He was working, like, I think it was like the like Walt Disney Rodeo or some shit in Paris. Yeah, know? I've heard about that. And uh, he's over there. He's hanging out in town, I guess, not during the show. And some dude gets off the bus, guitar. I don't know, maybe... Whatever happens, he goes over and introduces himself. Like, hey, what's up? And the dude's like, oh, man, I'm Ryan. Uh, I don't have a fucking pot to piss in, you know? I can like, see where I'm this is I'm looking for a job, you know? It's fucking Bingham, you know? Yeah. Showed up over there. He got him a job working there. And, and then fucking Joe Hub decided to learn how to play the spoons. And next thing you know, they're, they're busking for money on the streets <laughs> of Paris, you That's know? That's badass. Making beer money, you know? And yeah. It was a pretty cool story. Joe Hub's a great guy. And... uh just cool to hear him just like you know of course those two would meet over there on the streets with you know him over there just doing some rodeo tricks and <laughs> exactly here comes Bingham with a guitar you know? yeah that's the thing that's what i like with all these artists they you know some some are established and some are not and like any one of them could be Bingham yeah. like there's a i got a i've got a bunch of friends that live over there in like the west texas area now that where he came out of and there's you know all these there's guys over there that are just doing the ranch thing doing all, living a very similar life to what he used to live and like zach mcginn's over there and and hayden redwine and all these artists that they like they're fantastic musicians but they're just mostly on the ranch they play shows here and there but that's what bingham was doing was just like trying to get around and you just the right person hears you or you sing the right song and bam it just explodes <clears throat> well and right now dude it's like the waters are so murky because there's so many opportunities which has made it like there's just so many people doing it right like and there's not as many stable channels as there was say 10 years ago yeah. you know like say you do have a hit song but like you know it's hard to get it to go viral if you will you right. know we're like 
you know, the, even if somebody gets picked up by a big record label this, these days, like it doesn't really, you know, it's not a guarantee as much as it was 20 years ago. We're like, yeah. you know, that record label is flooding the airwaves. Like there is no airwaves to flood. Like they don't have that power anymore, mm-hmm. you know, because there are YouTube channels like Dusty Vaquero that are giving people so many different options, you know, and it's right. Like, so it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's tougher and easier these days for that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. because there are so many opportunities, but there's that many opportunities for everybody, you know, and yeah, in the music industry, is, it's just, it's always been tough, you know, yeah. and it's like, it's one of those things that's kind of like the motorcycles, like, you got to love it, you know, yeah. like, you're not, you're not getting into this if you've really, you know, if you're trying to get rich, fast. yeah, if you're trying to get rich, you're not going to stick around, long, <laughs> you know, like the people that are going to stick around are doing it because, they don't know. They don't have any other options. You yeah. Know, like this is. They're all in. This is what they want to do. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and that's just the same with music. Like you got to want it. You know, and maybe not even want it, but you got to just do it. You know, and continue yeah. to do it. And sometimes the stars align. You know. Yeah, and I think it's that way with any craft, really. Like unless unless you're just very lucky or incredibly talented, like. Whether whether you think it's gonna make you rich or not, if it's something you love doing, you just gotta pound away at it. Yeah. And as long as you still love doing it, and it's something cool that you feel is worthwhile, you keep doing it, and there's no telling what It'll it could become. It. But it won't happen overnight. No. It'll never. It rarely happens to anybody that that just clicks and takes off. Like you gotta do it for ten years before you become an overnight success. So are you going to continue traveling? Are you going to push the Dusty Vaquero? What's the, what's the future plans of this Lost Cowboy? Yeah, that uh, I'd like to continue traveling, doing international stuff. We've been, I've been thinking about, you know, possibly doing some like documentary type stuff with, because since I didn't have video the whole time doing this, I could go back and do like a round two yeah. and redo it all. or. Pick another country. Already have that leg in and be able to, you know, yeah. have a little bit more knowledge of the story that you might be able to tell. Yeah. Or or it's possible I've thought about going back and uh, just redoing it with in different countries. Like on all six continents, there's another country on that continent. I could go do something yeah. similar. So I, th- I, I heard you were talking on a different podcast talking about Nepal. Like that that's the next place that was on on my list to yeah. go because I Mongolia was sick I loved it over yeah. there and so uh, I would I would go back to Mongolia in a heartbeat I think I want to go next year I think that's it's gotta happen I didn't I didn't have a bike when I was over there but I really wish that I did but I did it all horseback which was still yeah. cool too I want to get on the horseback while I'm over there riding oh, the bike oh you will because that that whole culture is so centered around horses like everybody when I was working over there, I remember there was like, you know, there was a kid having a trouble, having trouble with a horse or something, and like a taxi driver in a Prius is going by and like gets out of the Prius and he's like, get, get, let me see that horse, and just jumps, <laughs> jumps on it and whips it into shape and then gets back in his taxi and drives off. Like, oh, that's awesome. everybody in Mongolia is based around horses, but because of that, you know, they're nomadic people. There's no fences. There's no private land you can go wherever you want and nobody can tell you no as long as you're not like in somebody's you know right in front of their tent or whatever yeah. you can camp wherever well, you want self-police that situation themselves i'm sure yeah they're completely self-policing i don't i don't know that i saw a police officer in mongolia when i was there hmm. 
But they, I didn't hear about any crime either. They well, just, Nepal is fucking, you know, it's, it's really crazy. Like the, you know, like they've, they're just like, I, I, well, the way I try to explain it, like they're not like normal people. It's like they're a different breed of the human over there. Yeah. Like they don't have the same uh, priorities or instincts or uh, the selfishness that we have here. Exactly. You know, like it's a real communal uh you know, like just everything about them is like including everything and everybody. And, yeah. Uh, and it just, it shows in so many ways. Like it's taken me a couple of years of, you know, I've been there twice, but like the more I look back at some of the experiences, it's like all been because of, you know, their approach to the human existence that's so different from ours that yeah. really highlight all the, they just make all those experiences very unique. Right. Unlike anything I've experienced elsewhere. Yeah, I agree. That, I mean, similar in Argentina. Like, Argentina has a real, like, real communal uh, approach to living. You know, like, everybody. Even the way they drink stuff is very communal. Yeah, like, fuck, no, no, we're not each ordering a drink. We're going to order this one and and share it. it, You know? We're going to, like, you show up with a group and they order, one guy orders for everybody. You know? Not because they don't think you're capable, but, like, I'll That's, take you guys enjoy this. I'll I'll take care of the food. You you know like yeah, and it was a, you know it's just a, a different way of going about things. But I really enjoy it. You know? I do too. That and Mongolia is similar too. Like if they see you, passing by there, they call it a gear. A lot of people call them yurts here, but they gale. just gear g e r. Okay, gear. Gear and they, uh, yurt yurt is a Russian word. Gear is a Mongolian word, and they, uh, but they, that's what everybody lives in. Like, the majority of the country lives in those and moves them around out in the country. still nomadic. Still nomadic. Like, I don't remember what, what it is. What are they following around? Grass. Because they all have livestock, so they're, okay, so when they're they run out of grass. grass for their livestock. Yeah, they, they run no out fences. of. No fences. No private land. And no, they're not all on leashes, they're just. No, nope, they're just out, and. They they have their ways of like keeping them from mixing, but they do mix. Like they brand everything and they brand them. the sheep okay. and goats. They paint their horn. Every family has like a color, so they'll paint their horns so they can distinguish them or tie ribbons on their horns, just stuff like that. Yeah, I've but, seen the ribbon. So they do mix. I I went up there and lived with the last people on earth that ride reindeer as their main source of transportation. <laughs> I forgot I saw that. Yeah. Literally a, reindeer. Reindeer. Like right. a, like a horse. Yeah, we were like riding fucking, riding reindeer like they were horses. Or a saddle. Yep. Everything. And those those families up there, they they didn't brand those or anything. So they would just tie ribbons around their horns. Each family had a certain ribbon color that belonged to them and then they turn them all out together and it's like a communal everybody helps herd them. And they go out and graze them around and bring them into a pen at night so the wolves don't get them. And that's just how they how they do it all together. Did you drink the... Uh, Ed egg? Yeah, maybe that's The it. mare's milk? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I drink a lot of that <laughs> shit. That stuff. I, so I met some other white folks over there when I was there. And I don't think I met a single one of them that, that could, ha- like, hack that stuff. Really? They... They would drink it because, like, you go into into one of these families' gears, and the first thing they do, it's just customary. They give you a bowl of Eric. Yeah, check it out. This is and what we make here. Yeah, this is our flavor of it. 
try it. Yeah. And it's usually got horse hairs and flies floating around in it and stuff. And you just drink it out of the bowl. Yeah. And I, it doesn't taste great. It just tastes like sour milk. But uh, they, like, I could drink two, three bowls of that stuff and hop on my horse and trot an hour home. And it didn't feel great, but it never made me sick. But there was some people over there that were foreigners that they got really sick from drinking that stuff because it's just fermented mare's milk. And the way they do it is they take two goat, like tanned goat hides and they sew them together like a leather bladder, basically. Okay. And they have a culture. And, and from my understanding, some of those families, those cultures are yeah, like multi-generational. Yeah. So they constantly keep <coughs> mare's milk in there and they... They go milk those mares like three or four times a day and bring the bucket in and just dump it into what's already kind of fermenting in there and mix it up. And so they... It's like making sourdough. Yeah, it's like a sourdough starter. starter. Yep, that's exactly what it is. And they... uh, So when you walk in, they just take... And that bag doesn't close. So there's all kinds of like wild bacteria getting in there. From generations. From generations, yeah. (laughs) Same leather bag. And so they... You, you just go in there and the families will go in and take a bowl and just scoop it out and hand you that bowl. And it's rude not to drink it. So yeah. they, and it's slightly alcoholic. It's like, it's like beer, it's probably 4%, something like that. And uh, when, when we were taken off to go up to where the reindeer folks were at, I was hanging out with some of the herder guys that were with us that they spoke no English, but they, um, so we couldn't communicate, but one of them, they instantly like me because I have a beard. And uh, most Mongolians can't grow a lot of body hair. So it's always, they most of them cannot grow a beard at all. So if you have a beard, it's like a sign of respect. Or like really? they really respect a beard. So they, or like if I was wearing shorts and Mongolian kids were running around, they would always pull my hair because none of them have leg hair either. Yeah, they're just like, they're so fascinated by I looked like a woolly mammoth to them. So they, uh, but so they befriended me pretty quickly, and we head out from camp, headed up into the mountains, and they ride up next to me, and they pulled a water bottle out of their saddle, and I could see I assumed it was Eric because it looked like milk in this water bottle, and they handed it to me, and I took a swig. And it was potent shit. And it turned out it was half vodka, half air egg. <laughs> and so we were just pulling on that jug the whole rest of the ride, the rest of the day up yeah. into the mountains. And we got to our first camp because it took us a few days to get up there. But first camp next to the river. And then they didn't want everybody to keep having to pull off the same jug. So they, uh, like my cup that they gave me was just a used tuna can. And, and everybody has, everybody had different receptacles to drink out yeah, of. Yeah. So I'm just sipping vodka and, and fermented mare's milk out of a tuna can, and we had a good night that night. Oh, cook cook some goat meat over a fire. This is a dang good time. That's but, awesome. Yeah, be careful with that stuff. If you go to Mongolia, yeah. it, it can well, get you. I mean, I th- my approach has always been just dive in early on. Yeah. Just dive in. Get. Take the sickness, take whatever you yeah. can get, and just and get over on. it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's, I've I've been lucky because I, in my, to my knowledge, I can't ever remember having food poisoning anywhere that I've ever been. Really, but I think I just have guts like a dog. Like yeah. in Australia, we didn't boil, we didn't filter, we didn't purify our water in any way. We just 
drank it straight out of the same ponds that the cattle drank. And everybody drank it. And I, that never made me sick. It was like, there's a lot of stuff that I've eaten that probably you would think would make you sick. And it didn't make me sick. So maybe I'm just lucky. No, I've been that. sick a handful of times. The last big trip we did in Mexico, I think we were there almost two weeks. And I finally got the, you know, whatever it was. <laughs> you shit, shower, and sleep. You know, for <laughs> yeah. Fucking 24 hours and then it's gone. You know? Yeah, and then you're good. And the, the last time, or the first time I went to Nepal was in 2019, in November. And my layover was in China. It was 2019. Yep. You know, I was not well. When I got home <laughs> after that layover, I thought it was just from going to LAX. You know, like, oh, right. I got something in LAX, you know. Yeah. It was not. You were the, you were the original COVID yeah. case in the United Patient States. Zero, <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah even even you know actually my first time i went to guatemala when i was real young too another one of those mission trips where we thought we were helping them yeah uh and i came back this is funny i was came back and uh i had like band practice we were out in the field marching i got a snare drum on me playing the drums and then i wake up and i'm like slumped over the drum on the ground and I roll over and everybody's just looking at me and I'm like what the fuck just happened and then immediately you know it was everything I could to squeeze my asshole to keep that stuff from coming out and I just fucking pulled the drum off and I don't say nothing to nobody I just take off fucking running you know <laughs> yeah and that was like my first experience with Montezuma's revenge yeah you know? there was you like go. A, a true Revenge, because I was fine until like three days after being home. And it just, <laughs> I don't know, maybe it was the reintroduction to fucking, you know, processed foods that got me. Could have been, could have been. Uh, yeah, you must have a, an iron gut going those places and drinking yeah. water. I just, I've heard people tell those stories and I just, it just never crosses my mind. And I'm sure someday it'll probably happen to me and then I'll think twice about that stuff. But Don't think twice. I mean, I think that that's just... What I've always gone with is like if you if you if you stay in those places long enough, you're gonna get something. You know, like something's yeah. gonna happen. Uh, but I'm not gonna let that stop me from experiencing those places. You know, exactly. Like that's as far as I'm concerned. That's just you know part of it. You know, right? Yeah. Like there was a guy. Uh, There's a podcast I listened to. He uh, he read a book about a guy. He went to some indigenous tribe in some jungle, whether it was Central South Africa, wherever it was at. And, uh, you know, these people could just drink the muddy water. They could, you know, like they weren't getting sick. He was trying to figure out what microbiomes it takes to, like, be able to guard your body against those yeah. things. So this dude was taking, like, I think it was, he was taking their shit and fucking shooting it up his butt. You know, trying. I've, yeah. You know about this? I've, well, I've heard that you can take somebody else's, like, microbiome. I don't know about jamming shit up your ass. But, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would do the same thing. But it, it all has to do with, like, What's your, your large belly? intestine yeah. and your belly. And, like, certain people have different cultures. Yeah. Like, like lactose intolerant people and stuff like that. Chris Ryan. That's the guy's name. Chris Ryan. So he's reading this book, and he's at the he's at a, he's at the fucking ghost town bar, 
the starlight in Terlingua. Oh, yeah. And he's telling this story about this fucking guy. And he's talking to some other smart people. And they all just are looking at him like they just saw a ghost. <laughs> he's like, and they're like, that's the guy that wrote the book. And the guy was sitting at the fucking table, you know? Oh, really? Like, fucking crazy. <laughs> but, you know, it's, like, it's all about getting those microbiomes. Like, when I go to Mexico, normally the first thing I do is take the tap water and splash my face. Yeah. Let it get in my eyes or, you know, like, not a big dose, but like... Just get a little bit. Just get a little bit, you know, yep. and then and move on. But. And slowly work it in. Yeah, there's... I, uh, I've read about, like, a, I think it's kind of a fly fisherman thing where... There's some purist fly fishermen that will will not fish water that they won't drink, and so they'll drink Whoa. they'll drink right out of the water as they're drinking. But it it takes a while before yeah. you can get to the point where you don't get absolutely sick or anything. But um, I've I forget where I read that, but it was a fly fisherman doing it. He's like, why would I walk over to the bank, get my water bottle, like I'm standing in water, and if it's so dirty that I can't drink it. I shouldn't be in here fishing anyways. Yeah. So I might as well. So the, they just started drinking the water. And it took like a year, and now they can drink any water. That's interesting. Just keep drinking river So you water. said you got a book in your truck. What are you, uh, what are you reading or in your car? What book oh, are you carrying around right now? My own book. Oh, I've got hun- yeah. hundreds of them. <laughs> I just got stuck. <laughs> I ain't reading it. I'm trying oh, to sell this them. This is perfect, man. Full <laughs> circle here, dude. Tell yeah. us about the name of your book. The book is called The Lost Cowboy. Okay. Um, Coulter Wall wrote the foreword. He was gracious enough to do that. Um, it went. I don't know if it still is. I don't really check it, but it for for a while it was the number one seller, like in its area or whatever on Amazon and. Um, yeah, it went, it's been going far better than I expected it to go. Um, What's the best way for people to buy it? Amazon or come out to uh, a book signing. We're get, I'm getting ready to release some dates. I'll have, it'll, for now, it will be Montana, Wyoming, and a little bit in Colorado. I'll have some, like, in-person signings where I'll have a bunch of books. You can show up and buy them there. But easiest and fastest way is to get it on Amazon. You can find it on there. But they're, uh, yeah, it's a, it's like, it's a decent sized book, I guess. It's like 400 pages, so it. Yeah, you said it was like 100,000 word essays? Yeah, rough. I think it's, I think the book itself is about 105,000 words total. So, um, yeah, it's a, but like we were talking about when, at the beginning, like it's, it's all written in kind of short stories, so you can. I don't know if it would make a ton of sense if you jump around, but you can read little pieces at a time, and it it all kind of is written. That's how I wrote it, so you can read it that way. So if people want to follow you on the social medias, or the, the Dusty Vaquero is one YouTube page. Yeah, and yeah. So uh, I've got the Lost Cowboy and Dusty Vaquero, two separate things, but I've got uh, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook for both of them. Beautiful. Yeah. Jacob, thank you for coming out here. Absolutely, man. That was fun. It's a beautiful spot out here by the pond. We should do it again, dude. Absolutely. We'll each go our separate ways and then come back and run into each other. Meet up and watch the fucking sunset and and bullshit again. Hell yeah. Thank you, sir. Yeah, you bet, man. JB, thanks for coming out. I hope I was saying your name right. JB Zilke. Zelka. Zilke. 
Zilke, Zilke. Anyways, check him out. Lost Cowboy on the Gram or Dusty Vaquero for some badass music. Go look up his book on Amazon, uh, The Lost Cowboy. I've been reading it to my kids. We are on like chapter 26th. And it's just his time in Australia, and it's been so good. Like, literally, every morning and every evening, my kids ask if we can read it. Sometimes it works out. Most of the time, we've been reading almost every night since I got the book from them, and sometimes even in the morning on the weekends when we got time. So, trust me, you'll enjoy it. His style of writing is uh, very inspirational. Uh, your kids will love it. You'll love it. Great stories. Um, you know, just from the podcast, I knew this book was going to be good. And, uh, you know, getting to share with my kids. They're just bummed that they weren't here to meet him when he was here. So uh, I'll make that happen in the future. JB, if you ever need anything, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, dude, go to mcshoptees.com. Sign up now so you can get that Indian Larry t-shirt next month. Go to dangerdancetalkshop.com. Patreon support so that you can win a trip or an expedition thanks to Motorcycle Sherpa, or just go to MotorcycleSherpa.com and sign up to go to Nepal with me this November. Uh, go check out Knives Made by Nick, making the best tools for your hip that you could fucking ever find anywhere. Thank you once again, and I'll see you in Mexico.